0: Hello and welcome back to Books and Badgers. As always, I'm Colin and this is Season 2, Episode 3. That's right, we are covering Salam This is Book 2 of Mossflower. Uh, our last episode, we had to break up into two different episodes because it was so big and I think we're going to be in a similar boat today but we'll see how it goes. Um, with me, as always, is uh, your fantastic co-host, Trevor. How's it going, Trev?
1: It's going great. I'm really excited to jump into some Badger lore here.
0: <laughs> I'm so excited for the Badger lore. How are you, How are you feeling about uh, Salman Dastron overall?
1: Overall, I think it's a great part of a great book. Um, I've finished the book at this point in time, um, but of course we'll be talking about parts two and three for the next couple of episodes before we do our big roundup. Uh, but I love this portion of the book. I think that this is actually the most compelling portion of the book because there's so much kind of rich world building and character building going on in this in this second section.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. That I think that this book too has been the most fun I've read of any of the of the two books that we've uh, visited so far between Redwall and must and uh, Mossflower. Um, there's a lot of really great things in here, and I really think it ties back to the Badger lore as you kind of introduced. So we've got a lot to cover in this episode, but before we jump to that, I got to always ask you this, Trev. What, what have you been reading?
1: I've been reading a lot of stuff lately. Uh, the latest book that I finished was actually Frostbite by Angela Sylvain. It is oh, yeah. a 90s horror throwback to What I think is some really interesting um, kind of like horror tropes and uh, ideas. Um, It's centered in a small town in North Dakota that has become infected by an alien parasite that turns all of the town's prairie dogs into these feral monsters. And it is absolutely hilarious. Does not sacrifice any of the emotional beats that you want out of a kind of coming of age horror story. It was just a heck of a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, it sounds super cool. And I yeah, I saw you were reading that and uh, on your Goodreads, and uh, I I remember it because that cover that has a very kind of a retro cover that looks awesome.
1: Yeah, lots of hot neon
0: pink. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, well, for me, I haven't really been reading a whole lot besides Redwall. I mean, I'm reading a, a book for, for work and a baby book. Um, but most of my time has just been distracted by uh, playing cyberpunk because <laughs> I finally got a PlayStation to be able to play that. And uh, it's uh, it's really exciting. It's the complete opposite of uh, Woodland Creature Fantasy, but it's a lot of fun. I'm really enjoying that book. or Sorry, that game. Uh, but I know I got to get back into some. Some new books, and uh, we're going to be uh, rolling out into book three uh, here pretty soon. Well, we've got lots to cover, so how about we jump into
1: book two, Salmondastron? Sounds great to me. Book two, Salmondastron, kicks off with chapter 27 where Skipper of Otters undertakes a ruse to get Fortunata to commit to the course of action that would lead Mask to infiltrating Katir. As Mask accompanies her out to Mossflower, the Fox makes clear her intent to turn over the fake Ferdy and Cogs to Sarmina. Mask splits up with Fortunata, leading her into an ambush where Lady Amber kills her. Mask then puts on a show of being attacked so that Sarmina will rush to his aid. Once inside Katir, Mask convinces Sarmina of his sincerity as a fox, which leads him to being given an immediate promotion to captain. Meanwhile, Martin and company board Logalog's ship, where they are swept over a waterfall. Oh,
0: man, this is uh, we're, we're getting into the the chapters here in book two that just have so many things going on. I noticed this a lot with um, this book compared to the first book in Mossflower where Jake's is like really breaking up these like almost like point of view paragraphs per um, per chapter. So there's there's just an absolute ton going on here. Um, so first, I kind of wanted to talk about <laughs> uh the death of Fortunata. Um, this is very uh I don't want to say gruesome because it kind of happens like off screen, but it seemed really brutal for the quorum to kind of uh lead her out. And uh and then if I if I rem- remember right, it's just Lady Amber's waiting to like snipe her from a tree, right? Like <laughs> there's there's her demise is is imminent
1: yeah with a company of other squirrels it's it's not even just oh, that's lady right. amber she's there with a whole bunch that are all there basically to execute sarmina or not sarmina forgive me fortunata
0: fortunata yeah it's um it happens off page though right like we don't actually see it happening because it kind of closes but then um they discover her body just littered with arrows on the road
1: um i actually think they do show her uh he makes an allusion to all of the different arrows finding their mark uh, oh that's right you know yeah. something to that effect. like he 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 you know kind of turns it into a, a euphemism but yeah like we like <laughs> she absolutely gets murdered
0: yeah you're totally right i'm i'm mistaken on on uh, kind of recalling the early parts of this uh this book yeah you're definitely right i thought that that was um I guess necessary in, in their plot. Like I just, I just don't see how Mask's plan could work um, if Fortunata is present in Cotier. We kind of see that late in the the next chapter as to why that's so important. Um, but I did, I just felt like, man, this was like kind of a brutal, uh, brutal execution, but probably necessary for the quorum uh, in their path towards success.
1: Yeah, I. I struggled a little bit too, because it's such a violent death, right? And we kind of have to ask the question of like, you know, can there be justice through violence? You know, what what really is, is the limitation there? This is war, of course. So I think that right. we have to understand that, you know, you have to kind of take out military military targets when you can. But yeah, this feels like a pretty brutal solution to you know, getting rid of one of Sarmina's most trusted lieutenants. I do think that, you know, perhaps uh, it it would have felt a little better if, uh, I don't know, maybe Fortunata was like armed or, you know, maybe if she made kind of the first uh, attempt, but it's clear that her intent really is to turn over children to Sarmina for interrogation And I think the Woodlanders understand what she's there to do. And that in and of itself is kind of enough to mete out this kind of justice.
0: And um, Mask has a very special relationship with those children. So I, I think it's justified like why he would kind of go along with this. Um, I don't want to linger too much on this point because I think we'll talk more about the the violence in Mossflower in our review episode as we, we mm-hmm. kind of did that with the Redwall episode. Um, but that is one of the things that kind of stood out to me in this. Um, I also have to say that with Martin and company um, in Log Log's boat and going over the waterfall, this is a classic example of for me of jake's writing just being so convoluted in the moment that i have a really difficult time understanding what's going on i had to reread this section and i'm a i'm a dumb dumb reader so it might just be on me but (laughs) i this i this is kind of like it reminds me of when matthias was scaling the wall outside of the tower um in Redwall when he's when he's leaving uh king bullsparra's court and is trying to get up to the the roof of um of Redwall, it's the same kind of thing like he's trying to talk about action or write action but it's really confusing to understand what's going on and I think this waterfall is just was just difficult for me to to read I know that you're a way uh, smarter brained reader than I am but that's just one of the the comments that I had that I I guess a critique against this chapter
1: honestly I felt a little bit of the same way um I feel like we don't get a whole lot of them adventuring on the boat before it's just swept over a waterfall. Like it, it just kind of is yeah, it, a transition to get them into the next stage of the book. So chapter 28, Martin, Dinny, and Logalog wake up after their shipwreck in a strange cavern attended to by bats. Lord Cavir, the bat tends to their wounds and offers them hospitality. Although Gonf is missing. Travelers soon discover that their exit from the cave is being guarded by a bird of prey who won't let anyone out. Dinny comes up with a plan to get rid of the bird, and meanwhile, back in Mossflower, Mask stages a rescue from the inside of Katir. He's discovered as an imposter during the escape, the escape attempt, leading to a mounting of Katir's defenses.
0: Oh, boy. Yeah. Another another big setup for an obstacle and a solution in Chapter 28. Uh, First, I just want to say that I absolutely love the introduction of a new moss flower race or a woodland creature race, which is the the bats and uh, Lord uh, Kavir. I think it's how you say it, Kavir. Um, I think it's so cool how they're introduced and uh, I kind of get the association that they're more similar to mice as they are, like, you know, the badgers or the otters because of their stature and uh, a little bit of like how how they live. But they are essentially winged mice, like winged, you know, the bats are the the winged mice. So I just thought that the parallel was really cool and the way that they talk is very unique as Jake's is kind of done with these woodland creatures. Um, I really hope that we get to see more bats. We're not quite out of the cave yet, but this was definitely the highlight of this chapter and something I really, really adored about it.
1: It is really interesting. I had completely forgotten that the bats even existed in this book. Um, Oh, really? Yeah, and I was really surprised by them when I saw them. Um, I thought it was really, really fun. I love their little kind of echo speech pattern where they repeat the last couple of, words in a sentence um it was just really fun to kind of see their friendly culture and you know you're kind of right i mean bats are kind of the rats of the sky or the you know the mice of the sky in this case and so uh, we find that they actually have far more in common as a society than uh we we might have expected
0: yeah, I'm kind of curious your thoughts on the the bird of prey, the adversary that sits outside of the cave, because they say they have to route through the cave differently because of this bird of prey that's kind of nested. What I imagine is the mouth of the, the cavern or the cave that they're in. Um, and they are, their way of life is really restricted because of this obstacle. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, you know, them having to be rescued by other creatures if that if that's something that's you know a little deeper as jake's is trying to write or um if this is just you know to kind of serve the plot of um martin denny and gonf like I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts
1: yeah you know what, I, I didn't think too much about it um i think that the bird of prey you know it doesn't have a name we just know it's an owl or something like that that hangs right. out around this cave and has been Eating the bats as they come through. Um, I think that at this stage, it's really just necessary to put obstacles in front of Martin because he's on this quest now to find Salamandastrin. And I think that this part of the, the quest is really to explore outside of Mossflower. We have a good sense of who Mossflower uh, contains, you know, like who lives in Mossflower. We don't have a good sense of like the rest of the world though. So I think this is just a little bit of world building that Jake's is putting together. And we need an obstacle to get through these bats. They're not villains. They're not obstacles in themselves. And so I think in the spirit of adventure, we're going to run across a whole bunch of different obstacles from here until Salomon Dastron. And it just serves the purpose of, you know, giving Martin's company something to do. Yeah, yeah, I I, I think that you're right.
0: Um, I might just be kind of digging into it a little more. Um, one other point that I had is that I really love how cool and collected Denny is in this instance where Martin's <laughs> trying to figure out like, well, I think that we can upend this bird. I think that we can remove them and uh, Denny's like, yeah, I can definitely climb up there and do it. And none of you can like the birds, uh, sorry, the bats don't want to fly, um, to try to, you know, get out of the, the, the cavern. Um, it's a really steep grade. So it'd be hard for Martin to do it. And so Denny's like, absolutely. I can climb up there. And he just jumps into this plan, you know, kind of to execute this plan. I just thought it was so cool to see Denny step up in this moment and have this, um, this kind of assurance and this cool, you know, this ice in his blood. Oh, I can do it. No problem at all. Denny's <laughs> um, D- Denny's definitely one of my favorite characters out of the, 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 the traveling three, um, cause log logs there as well. He's right. Um, yeah, log log. It's log log. Denny and Martin, um, Gonf is missing. Uh, we all know that he's going to be coming back around. Like they, you know, Jax is trying to allude to it. We all know he's going to be found eventually, but, um. Yeah, it's, it's really cool to see this is uh, Denny's time to sh- to shine.
1: I really think that what's great about this book is that we get so much out of all of the secondary characters. So Gonf really has a place to shine in the first part of the book where we get mm-hmm. to get to know him and his skill set. And now that we're on this adventure, the other compatriots of Martin are going to have their moments to shine too. And I think that Denny, for at least this first part of book two, is kind of the standout. He's the one who figures out how to handle so much of the problems. And then we're going to see some good stuff from Logalog uh, around the, the latter part of book two into book three. And of course, Martin, I think, is another standout character in the last part of this book, like the last third-ish. So I, it's fun to yeah. see how all of them kind of interact with each other and how they each approach new problems.
0: Yeah, definitely. That's a good good point. I didn't really think about um, how the book really stages each character to have their moment to shine. But um, yeah, I, I love that idea.
1: Yeah. I thought you would bring up how mask is kind of uncovered uh, because I feel like this is one of the great kind of tragic set pieces. We know that it's going to go wrong, right? You can't just escape from Katir without something happening. And yet his undoing his kind of discovery is because basically he rises to rank so quickly that the avarice, the, the jealousy of these other, rats you know these other vermin um basically lead them to to pull a prank on mask and that's what (laughs) leads them to discovering that he's not a real fox yeah
0: it's a great point and i i love how um that's the one thing that Mask didn't account for is like a prank happening to him because he it's very tactful in the, the structuring of the, the rescue of how he's telling everyone to go and secure other parts of Kotir while he goes in to, you know, check the cell, the very dangerous individual downstairs. He's very clear to make this path warm, but what ends up upending him is the, um, <laughs> the, the jealousy that he created
1: yeah so in chapter 29 mask escorts gingivir and the hedgehog twins out of katir but he catches an arrow in the back that was meant for gingivir that arrow being fired from sarmina while the Corum masks a rush to to cover the escapees tracks gingivir and skipper mourn masks sudden death outside of mossflower Denny manages to create a means of exiting Lord Cavier's mountain into the land of mist, but the adventurers are promptly caught outside by a band of toads. Oh, man, I have so much to
0: say about mass death, but I want to start with you uh, with your thoughts.
1: Yeah, this is one of those really tragic deaths. I mean, we had brought up the uh, w- what were we calling it? The shadow of shadow trope. Or the shadow trope. Um, Yeah, this is the shadow trope in action, right? We have a really cool (laughs) side character, and you know he's got to go. As a young reader, this caught me so completely off guard, and I almost stopped reading the book because I was so heartbroken over it.
0: But you forgot about this, right?
1: Um, In your reread? In my reread, I had no I remembered that mask died, but I didn't oh. remember how or when it happened. I thought it happened really late in the book, and I was surprised what, to find that it was uh, only kind of at the beginning of, of part two, which I guess we should say is about 65 percent of the way through this book. Yeah, but it certainly <laughs> caught me by surprise. I was not prepared.
0: Yeah. Um that's that's really interesting because I we were before we uh, when we ended ended part one, we were talking about the shadow trope and we said we're this is really going to be the test of the shadow trope. I have not read this book before, so this was kind of a test for me is the shadow trope real if you are a um, a red wall creature that has a unique ability, you will die in the book. Um, and so far we're batting, you know, 100%. <laughs> on the shadow trope um this but this death really caught me by surprise as well because sarmina without hesitation sees gingivere and fires the crossbow and the arrow um narrowly missing uh simply because he was trying to pick up the two boys and the arrow hit mask was very upsetting because it was like well it, it you know it's because of the hatred that she has for Gingerveer. mask gets caught in the crosshairs literally the crosshairs for that and then they have this moment where they're escaping and he's with skipper and his demise is imminent and they talk about um, the Black Forest, going to the Black Forest, which mm. we know is death. I think this is the first introduction of the term Black Forest, right?
1: I, I think it's actually referenced a couple of times before this, but this is certainly the place where we begin to understand that there's almost a kind of religious reverence for yes. this idea of the, the afterlife
0: yeah approaching the 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 black forest or going to the gates of the black forest I think is how they mentioned it a few times yeah. we see a lot of this in part three and I have a whole bunch to talk about with in part three with the black oh, forest but yes. the time that Jake's takes to kind of pause on this and go through mass death and then kind of the grieving that Skipper has with his brother and the pause in the book I thought was so beautiful and um, really cool to see in a kid's book. I, I really enjoyed mm-hmm. that Jake's takes this time to recognize kind of the life and death, and, and what's happening and what that means to the characters. And then we kind of springboard into the the rest of the adventure. I think that you could say that this was like, you know, maybe a little bit too slow within the chapter, but I, I really love this. And I texted. I remember I texted you and I was like, man, Jake's is really playing with her heartstrings in this chapter. And you're like, oh, no, this mask die?" And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I guess we could kind of see that coming. But Um, Yeah, this this I think this will probably be the most memorable memorable part of this book for me. Like Mm -hmm. um, only time will tell. But uh, it definitely is something that that stuck with me for sure.
1: Yeah, this one definitely got tears from me. Uh, I was I was expecting it. I knew it was going to happen. And yet it still stunned me. It was it's it's handled so beautifully, you know, uh, because mask. You know, he throws himself in front of the arrow like he knows what's happening, and and he intervenes to save Gingerbeer's life specifically. And I think that this is one of those moments of heroism that the book does so well because it, it's constantly trying to kind of think of like who or what is a hero, what makes someone heroic, and here we see a character who really just kind of believes in the cause and believes in. Uh, his brethren, you know, kind of believes in the, the creatures around him. Um, and I think that's what makes this particular death so impactful. Even in his moment of death, he's thinking of other people and thinking of what skipper should say to Ferdy and cogs. Should they ask it's, it's just heartbreaking.
0: Yeah, it's really tragic. Um, now jumping back over to Denny and what's going on in, um, uh, Lord Kate, uh, um, kind of realm. They finally get rid of the bird of prey. I, I think you're right. It is an owl, or I thought it was like an Eagle or something, but they finally get rid of the bird of prey. And I believe Martin tells them how they can upend this bird again, if it was to ever return and it provides a freedom to the bats for them to basically go anywhere. Um, that they did not have. And I thought this was kind of interesting how, you know, the, um, obviously Martin and Denny, um, and log, log and gone on a very specific quest. And this, this action that they have with Lord K uh, Kaviers, um, is something that complete will, will completely change their life. Like they, they removed a, a very, um, a, uh, a very, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Constricting obstacle that and has kind of provided them freedom. And I really thought that this would pay off way more in the book, and it doesn't. And I think that's kind of interesting of how he comes in, provides the freedom. They're able to go wherever they are. And it's not like they come back around and help them or whatever. We don't hear anything from the bats again,
1: right? Right, yeah, um, I think they make reference to these adventures, but in a way, this is also kind of the classical adventuring trope. You know, uh, you think back to a lot of, uh, gosh, um, medieval kind of storytelling, or or even earlier than that. Uh, take, for example, the Aeneid uh, by Virgil. Um, that really is just a series of adventures from Aeneas and any one particular adventure doesn't necessarily set up the next one. It's just kind of a recount of all of the things that Aeneas had to go through before he managed to kind of land in Italy and establish Rome. So it's just kind of this classical trope of like, you go out on an adventure and you see many interesting things. And even though they're very interesting, they don't stick around for too long. You know, it's like the lace in the odyssey. I mean, they're there for yeah, like a stay. couple paragraphs and that's it.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, maybe it kind of follows that, the storytelling that is from the Iliad or the Odyssey, because that that is true that you don't necessarily see them come back around. But in Redwall specifically, the first book, the two instances that Matthias interacts with two other groups, the Shrews and um, the 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 um, Sparrows, they come back and help him at the end. So that's what I was kind of curious. I like I thought mm-hmm. that that's what Jake's was setting up, and maybe it's unfair of me to kind of think that's what Jake's was going to do. Um, but I just I just thought it was a, a something I wanted to bring up as an an interesting thing that this event happens and they just kind of go along
1: Um, not too dissimilar from the
0: from what we're going to see with the toads but we'll save that for the next chapter
1: yeah those toads my gosh speaking of them in chapter 30 the toads lead Martin and company to their leader who pronounces that they will be thrown into the scream hole which is some kind of well Uh, back in Mossflower Skipper of Otters faces off with Clud to avenge masks death Skipper wins the fight and escapes the Thousand Eyes army once again. Uh, Sarmina falls into the river where they fight and it furthers her humiliation in defeat. I've got a
0: lot of thoughts about um, Skipper and the the fight with Clud. But first, I want to hear your thoughts on the toads as to what's going on here with the toads.
1: Once more, I feel like as Martin and company are kind of traveling through this area outside of the the charted territory of Mossflower. We encounter of course like different civilizations, like different factions that inhabit this this area. And I felt like the toads are kind of these perfect grotesque villains uh that live in this weird mist country. Uh again, it's it feels like it's just something born out of like the Odyssey where uh, Odysseus lands, you know, on the the Isle of the the Cyclops, right? And he has kind of this encounter, and things go wrong, and it's really messy. And I feel like this is Jake's playing with that same kind of familiar trope, giving us this kind of villainous band, this villainous society, um, and introducing us to some new wrinkles in the stuff that we absolutely would never see in Mossflower. Yeah, I agree. I think I kind of got the uh
0: impression that the toads are kind of like barbarians like cuz they they <laughs> yes. capture the the mammals for no reason and then they just say throw them right in the scream hole and uh you know <laughs> we're we're going to feed the scream hole and they they really have no rhyme or reason to do this except for the fact that they're different. Like it they're not really after anything that Martin and company have, right? Like they just no they just capture them and seek the opportunity. So um, and uh, I think it's green marsh is the um, or marsh green. Excuse me, is the yeah. captain of these toads. Um, this is very different than what we just saw with the bats, <laughs> where the bats, you know, have the similarity. Um, the it's like these are the the familiar bad guys to the rats, right? Like the toads are just, you know, <laughs> yes. baddies. Um, I just thought that that was really cool how Jake's kind of like parallels the two we have the bats that you know need help and they're pretty sophisticated and um and then we have these toads that are just being butts and
1: wanting to throw yeah. people in the scream hole. <laughs> i think i i don't necessarily want to go down a road of of considering certain uglinesses uh in this literature because i i think that jakes is definitely just having fun with a trope right I think there could be an unkind reading of this moment where the frogs are kind of compared to certain indigenous groups unfavorably, but I don't think that is his intent. I think he's just trying to create another kind of fantasy trope, a kind of fantasy uh, society here. And it stands in contradistinction to the kindness of the bats, right? We, we see these two different Mm -hmm. societies and their organizations. One being very sympathetic, and the other being very uh, antipathetic to you know the, the <laughs> yeah. woodland creatures.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're spot on. I'm not trying to make that comparison either. I, if anything, I think that Jake's is trying to make orcs. Honestly, I think he's kind of using the the <laughs> yes. the, the trope of the you know the mindless, grotesque individuals who are just um, there to you know incite chaos and violence. I think that's kind of what yeah. the toads are, uh, more like orcs.
1: Yeah, I I totally um, agree with that.
0: Now back over to Skipper and Otter uh Skipper the Otter and Clud. I love this moment because this is the kind of a uh a, a vendetta or um vengeance for ma- the mask. And I really like how it's this is set up where Skipper it kind of invites the other otters to help him with this plan and he's able to set up these spears um on the ground and then he kind of goads clud to get in a one-on-one battle with him and in that um clud lunges for skipper and he ducks under and clud impales himself on the the skewers that are kind of set up and it seems to me i kind of read this you know maybe this was kind of something that was gruesome but i rooted for skipper so much in this chapter (laughs) i was like yes you you have to get vengeance for Mask. you have to get that and we know that skipper's a big otter we know that he is a pretty pretty sizable um otter and so i really wondered what he was how how this was going to play out like i thought he was just going to clobber him but i think that the craftiness and slyness that um that skipper is able to um you know goad or or, or um challenge clud and that's his demise really plays to how clever he is i love this moment it, it made Skipper jump up five rungs for me and like, who's the coolest in this book. (laughs) Um, it was, I was definitely rooting for the death because of, uh, you know, my boy, the mask, I, I had to see, I had to see some vengeance for him.
1: Yeah. This is another trope I'm never going to get tired of. Um, I feel like we've been writing this kind of trope for forever. Uh, this was for me a very Achilles versus Hector kind of moment. Um, and, and, of course clud is not a hector type character i think hector was far more noble than clud but you know the idea of this like single challenge and we have one warrior versus another and it's really a game of their wits and a game of their skills and skipper is such a cool character just such a a kind of creature of action and it was so great to see this emotional fight for skipper and how he manages to kind of maneuver and outmaneuver his foes uh, and, and basically, you know, walk away, not necessarily totally unscathed, because I think this was a, a, a fairly difficult fight for him. Um, but to walk away the victor, um, I, I just love single combat scenes. I think it's so cool to see a contest between characters like this. Yeah, and we see more of this
0: of Skipper later on, both Skipper and Lady Amber, where yeah. they really aren't going to let a a challenge go by unanswered. <laughs> and I think that's a, a cool quality that's consistent with these characters. Um, I love the quorum so much. I think the quorum cast is so much more fun than um, some of the cast that we saw in Redwall. I'm not saying that I don't like the cast in Redwall, but I'm actively invested in what's going on with each of them, Uh, except for one part. We'll get to that later. But this is another reason as to why I just really, really love the quorum.
1: Yeah, it's really great. I think you were the one who pointed it out in the previous uh, couple of episodes. But, you know, basically the quorum really is kind of the main character of Mossflower. Like, yeah. Even though Martin ostensibly should be the protagonist, he's the one that we introduce in the first place. This is definitely a story of destiny for him in a, a bit of a way. Um, yep. But I think that in terms of his actual screen presence, you know, the time that is actually spent developing Martin's story, it isn't any more or any less than the other characters of this book. I really do think that the quorum is kind of the main focus, the main character of Mossflower.
0: Yeah, I want to put that to test um, in some of the later chapters here in book two. Um, and I'd really like to hear what our other uh, uh, great friend contributors, Tiffin William, think about that, because yeah. I think that you can argue that Martin is the main character based off of what we see a little later on. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm going to put a pin on that because I want to talk more specifically as to why I still think that the quorum is the main uh, protagonist later on.
1: Yeah, totally. I think the other thing to point out here, this is just kind of a fun, I think it's a a joke that Jake's was making, but it also becomes very important to the rest of the book. Uh, Sarmina falls into the river and she's humiliated by it. Not just humiliated, but uh, she she really panics over it uh, because I don't think Sarmina can swim. No, and I (laughs) I I don't think think so either. Yeah, I think this is a great little inclusion because, you know, there's that old adage like cats hate water and that's not necessarily true, but it is kind of a, a trope in a lot of writing, you know, this idea that cats hate water and Jake's takes that and turns that into Sarmina's like fatal weakness.
0: Yeah, he he points it out a few times. She does end up in the river in book one. Um, or she briefly maybe near the maybe river. Maybe I'm yeah. mistaken on that. Near the river. That's right. Um yeah, I think that he's he's building on something that we'll cover in book three, um, the very end the very end of Mossflower. Um that I, I'm excited to get to. But I also think that her humiliation in the water is very strategic to her her mental wellness that we see Mm. (laughs) fall apart
1: later on yeah Um, yeah well chapter 31 we're back at katir and the quorum have found a secret entrance into the castle they survey the castle in secret then begin a new plot to help bring sarmina down leading to the discovery of an underground lake this is where the gloomer was held right as Sarmina returns home from her latest humiliation, she finds growing dissent in her ranks. Her thoughts drift to creeping paranoia that she's being undermined by her commanders. And she begins having nightmares about drowning. Back in the scream hole, Martin discovers that Gonf isn't dead after all. He's just another cap- captive of Marsh Green and his toads. Reunited, the travelers work together to escape with Snakefish, who is an eel also held captive by the toads in the Scream Hole. With Denny's help, the travelers escape the Scream Hole, take Marsh, Marsh Green hostage, and escape the Land of Mist to discover the distant fires of Salamandastron.
0: Uh, I think that this chapter I have the most highlighted notes on because there's so much that happens yet again in this chapter. Uh, <laughs> it, this is an action packed one. First, I want to talk about how about uh, Sarmina's descent into just lunacy, where she believes that she's being undermined in every instance. I have to point out that Jake's has been kind of building up the fact that as Sarmina is battling against Mossflower. Um, She's really wasting time of the precious food resources that they have in order to survive in Cotier. And so the fact that they're losing all these battles and getting further and further out, of course, her army is getting more and more apprehensive about trying to follow her lead because they're hungry, they're getting, you know, smaller and smaller rations, and Mm -hmm. they're just not finding any kind of success. I think that's so important to the development of what's going on with Sarmina and her, you know, her being paranoid that she's being undermined. I also want to talk about these nightmares because this to me reads like a thread of the same soft magic that we saw happen Mm. with Clooney coming into Sarmina, where her, you know, Clooney saw visions of who uh, he believed to be Martin, the warrior who was coming out and um, would defeat him or he would he would hear. I think it was the Joshua Bell at the very end of the dreams. which is funny because, you know, of how it ends. But uh, <laughs> she is having a very, very similar um, similar vision um, in her dreams. And so I'm really curious to kind of hear your thoughts on this. Do you think that this is just, um, you know, playing into her madness? Or do you think this is that same soft magic that we saw with Clooney, the whole idea of fate and destiny being pre-de- uh, predetermined coming up like you know the hand of destiny coming out against sarmina
1: i think this is a great question um both my my answer would be both i think that on the one hand this is uh this kind of leads into just like sarmina's psychosis um if you will like she just kind of it, it converges on her in a way that uh I think really is just bad for her health. It leads to a dip in morale. And I think that the nightmares really start picking up, certainly surrounding the morale that she feels around her. So she's she's humiliated. She's stressed because of what's going on. And as a result, you know, she kind of starts having these nightmares. But I do think that one of the big thematic ideas that this book is playing with from Jake's is this idea of destiny and when faced with destiny what do you do do you run from it do you embrace it do you change your outlook because of it and i think that the way that these different characters as they confront destiny um how they handle destiny is is really interesting this isn't going away it's not just um sarmina who's going to have to face down you know this call of destiny we're going to see it with martin we're going to see it with some of the other secondary characters and i think that this is something that redwall continues to kind of come back to so i think this is one of the same kind of tokens of that soft magic and we can talk about it a bit too, because it's going to come back later, not just the dreams, but this right. concept of destiny as kind of a soft magic in this world.
0: Yeah, I'm really curious how the other books, I mean, that we're this is the second book that we're reading, so it's hard to compare it to the whole Redwall series. I'm assuming that it's going to be present. I'm just curious as to how often we're going to see this to even call it a soft magic, because we really haven't seen much magic in this book at all. I mean, Redwall in general doesn't have a whole lot of magic. But um, yeah, I'm just really curious to see um, see more more about this as, as we read. I have a lot to say once we get to Salmond because I think that the themes get a li- little bit heavier about, you know, fate and destiny when we get there. Um, so again, definitely more that we can talk about and we'll talk about in length with our uh, our review episode yeah Um, the other thing i wanted to mention that one of the notes that i had was uh talking about the scream hole and snakefish i think that this is such a good subversion of what we'd expect from um from snakes or lizards in redwall where the snakefish is really not that bothered by the inclusion of the man the the woodland creatures um uh, the, the mossflower creatures because they're mammals <laughs> and the <laughs> snake fish really doesn't want to eat them. He's like, I don't prefer to eat mice um, or. Um, yeah, I don't. Or shrews because that's log logs of shrew, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. OK, yeah. So I, the snake fish is saying I don't prefer to do that. So um, if you can get me out of here, though, I'll make it worth your while is kind of what he's saying. So I love the <laughs> fact that they kind of work together with snake fish and they get him out of the hole. And uh, they kind of make a, a rule where Martin says, if we don't get out of here um, within a certain amount of time, you can just eat us. I know you're hungry, so you can just eat us. <laughs> so I think it's funny that he's like, okay, you know, it sounds like a deal because he knows if he gets out, he's going to have an absolute buffet, which is what happens when they finally get the snake fish out <laughs> through Denny's help. He just uh, he just um eats up the entire trap of toads. Like I I loved this moment. I loved how, you know, this isn't another Asmodeus. This isn't another um you know uh, lurking predator that's out there um for the moss flower creatures because they're they're hairy and not of the uh <laughs> not of the variety that the snake fish would want.
1: Yeah I I didn't really bring it up in this chapter, but I think this is too we we discover that the newt and the the little garden snake or whatever that, that, you know, oh, yeah. one, um, they're there too. They're here with the, the toads. And I, I just think it's really funny that there's kind of this gathering of like little nasties and, uh, s- snake fish is just here being like, listen, I, I really don't have any beef with you guys. I'm just hungry. Uh, but you know the these toads have kept me here for a while it's like they're circus pets so if you just let me go uh I'll take care of them for you and you're never gonna have to worry about it again <laughs> yeah it's it's really clever
0: i this this is a pretty short kind of sidestep in their adventure too I, I really think that this whole thing only only happens over the span of what maybe maybe 20 pages or something it, it happens yeah. really quickly
1: yeah it's it it kind of is here. And then it's over with again, like a lot of adventure narratives. I think this is some of the stuff that I, find so fun about Mossflower is how much I think the tropes really match match a lot of those, you know, kind of epic adventures where we're we're being told about these mysterious journeys and the curious things that are are found on these journeys. Yeah, exactly. And we I I love that
0: we keep getting glimpses of Salmandastrian in its entirety as we get a little bit closer as we go through each obstacle, get out of the cave, get out of the marshes, we're starting to see more of it, so. Um, We're going to be talking about Salmon Salmon Dastain soon. But before we do that uh, and jump to the next chapter, uh, let's take a quick break and then we'll get right back to it.
1: In Chapter 32, we're back in Brockhall, and the Quorums celebrate their successful mission in Katir, even though they mourn the, the loss of Mask. gingerbeer plans to leave Mossflower soon, and the Quorum plan to flood Katir using their new knowledge of Katir's underground lake. Near Salamandastren, Martin and Company find it slow going across the sandy beaches along the seaside. They're harried by seagulls and a crab. At Katir, Sarmina's paranoia grows and she believes Gingivere plots in secret to infiltrate her castle under a disguise. Gingivere finally sets off to the east of Mossflower.
0: Yeah, so um, I have one note in here, and I forgot to go and reference this, Um, but is this where Ashleg makes a run
1: for it? is this a chapter I think that actually might be correct. I can't remember exactly when it happened because it was just a, a line or two, but I think yeah. you're right. I think this is where Ashleg probably runs.
0: Yeah, cuz Sarmina is really she she's panicking. She's seeing visions of ginger um where ginger isn't. Like she's seeing him in the woods, she's seeing him uh believing that some of the stoats that are uh, within Kotir are also um, otters in disguise. She's tripping out over the trauma that she's experienced with the within, within um, basically her home being invaded by um, by the mask and uh, and the rest of the the quorum. Um, so I think this is where Ashleg, if I'm right, but if not, someone correct us, where Ashleg is just saying like, Hey, I can't, I can't be part of this anymore. I I can't follow where you're going. You're just going down the path of madness. And so I believe he just leaves his cloak in within leaves. And I texted you, um, when this happened, and I said. The cloak is 100% a Chekhov's gun, right? <laughs> like the fact that Ashley <laughs> Ash leg, you know, just drops the Coke, the, the cloak and leaves has to be, it has to come back. Why include that as a note, you know, kind of seeing Jake's writing, why this is included, um, so I, that's not in the notes that you provided, but I think it's here, so I'm gonna go ahead and highlight it. And as my portion, uh, for this chapter.
1: Yeah. I, I don't have a whole lot to say here. Um, we get one more encounter on the beach, which I think is kind of interesting. There is the beginning of an illusion about kind of the culture around Dastron. We're on the beach now, we're getting toward this this volcano. And I think that this beach sequence is really important in kind of understanding some of what we're gonna see a little bit later but other than that i you know i i don't have a whole lot to add here um of course gingivere going off to the east to start his farm that's gonna come up in redwall right that's where we we find squire gingivere um you know kind of distant descendant of uh here so
0: yeah, I, I'm curious about that. I didn't have that highlighted here because I wanted to talk about it more when um, Bella goes to meet Gingervere or finds Gingervere. But I have a lot of questions about that that I'm I, I want to hear your thoughts on. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pause my thoughts on Gingervere and his farming escapades. Um, I don't really have any else to contribute except that the crab is just. I had to read that twice because. I was just like the crab shows up gonf just does a little jig with it and then they just leave like there's really not a lot that happens (laughs) Um, I think that they give it a stave and uh, the the crab mistakes that for a creature or he mistakes it for the. the prey and then is dancing with it, and golf kind of makes fun of him and, and runs off um he yeah. loves this moment he thinks it's the funniest thing he even references it later when he re- reunites with columbine so that's kind of funny um yeah he's like yeah i, I got to dance with some crabs
1: uh <laughs> yeah yeah that's chapter 23 right martin and company fight off a, a crab uh, and then turn back to the task of approaching salam dastron they encounter a dead body of a formerly enslaved sea rat and give it a proper burial in mossflower the quorum begin digging the flood channels into katir that they are going to use to flood that underground lake and meanwhile sarmina slowly goes insane hunting her brother in the woods I think I just inadvertently combined thirty two and thirty three together in my mind. I think they, I they was really just like
0: blend. this happens, yeah, it's uh, they just happen so close to each other that I kind of conflated that. but um i I am really curious to hear your thoughts on the dead body because this mm-hmm. to me brings a lot of gravity to the extending world that the that moss flower exists in where it's clear that there are other forces that are happening outside of moss flower woods even outside of the beaches of salamandastrin and we see that with this rat who has died on the beach and has basically a shanty town, right like a, a a little a little yeah. hole or um a, a little you know dwelling and um very little resources that are very important to martin and the rest of the gang and because of that that's why they do this burial for the rat in in reverence for the home that this rat had made but it's believed that this rat was a slave right that the rat was enslaved and was able to get free and has um you know was trying to find survival but ultimately died to the elements um this brought a gravity <laughs> to the story that hit me kind of hard i i'm not gonna lie like mm. you know we just went from dancing with crabs to this happening that i was like whoa this is like this is heavy this is a lot more um yeah it's just heavy just the, yeah. the reality of of the the dangers of this world
1: yeah we find that Mossflower is kind of an interesting location in this kind of universe if you will because Mossflower is centrally located and it really is kind of insulated from the conflict of other areas so we see that you know from the north martin talks about how there are these sea rat pirate ships that are constantly assaulting the north and that's one of the reasons why he left the north was because every one of the people that he knew Either were killed by these rats, or they were taken by these rats, and there was nothing left for him there. And that's why he kind of migrated south into south and into Mossflower. But here we come, and we we kind of find that out near Salamandarun, there's another kind of brutal war going on, and it is, uh, you know, kind of between these same sea rat pirates from some other distant coast, um, who terrorized this particular coast. And Salomon Dastron is a figure in this conflict as we come to find out. I think what's really great about this particular moment though, is that Martin and company recognize life and recognize to give it a kind of honor that maybe even the person or, or the creature that, Lived that life may not have you know kind of deserved uh, because we yeah. know that rats in this world you know vermin in this world are evil and yet they see the markings of this having been a galley slave and yeah. so they mm-hmm. they still give it a kind of reverence they give it a, a kind of space to to mourn this rat essentially that they never knew that they knew probably wasn't the the best of person. Or the best of creatures. Uh, but that's not really the point. You know, the point is um, having reverence, I think, for all creatures, all, all different walks of life. And in giving it a burial, they give it kind of this um, formal reverence that I don't think any of the sea rats, you know, might have if the situation were reversed. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And I, I think that
0: maybe I'm just leaping a little too far in this idea, but I think that Jakes is also trying to highlight the importance. as Like like you mentioned, Mossflower is very unique in the fact that it's centrally located and um, it has a, a kind of natural protection. We can see that of how the Quorum is fighting against Cotir or Sarmina and, and Cotir, and they're kind of using this like gorilla tactics within the trees and things like that but they're they're not 100 percent safe as to where they are and so I think this is why Redwall is so important as a place the Redwall abbey is so important because of the protection the stability of peace that it provides because of what's going on in the rest of the world and even though that they're centrally located it I mean that's that's what we saw in the whole first book when rats come to attack you know Clooney has, and his horde come to attack Redwall. I so I wondered if this was, again, this is, might be a leap of an idea, but I wondered if this is you know um, Jake's trying to plant those little seeds of the dangers that are going on in this world to try to build up the importance of of what Redwall is. I mean, as the core of the first book, um, yeah. I'm just kind of kind of curious to to the chase that idea. I think that we're going to see a little bit more of that in book three, Matameo, um, because of how, because it happens after book one. So, um, uh, book one Redwall. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm going to stop my thoughts there. <laughs> I'm sure you have some follow-ups,
1: but, um, just want to dump that out there. Yeah. Um, I think as we grow closer to Salomon Dasrin, I just get more and more invested, in the world that is kind of being depicted here, and and clearly we see that even Salomon Dastron, this far far off place is not immune to this cycle of uh, violence. You know, this kind of cycle of of the the gruesomeness of of other creatures and other creatures' of society. So in chapter thirty four, Martin and Company encounter three hares. Trubs Wuther, and Fring, who offer to take the quartet into Salamandastron. In Mossflower, a fox named Bane meets with Sarmina, and they forge an uneasy alliance in the hopes that Bane will help eliminate the woodlanders in Mossflower, though he vows to take on war crimes to do it. The Quorum continues to build their flood tunnels into Katir. And Skipper offers to take watch duty.
0: Okay. I, you know, you know I love Basil. You know, I'm a big, big hair <laughs> fan since book one. I was ecstatic to get some more hairs in this book. <laughs> and their introduction is so fun to me because Martin and Denny and Gonf and Logalog are just hanging out on the beach. Um, they're starting a fire and they just hear people speaking to them. And they're like, what is going on? And out of nowhere, it trubs is just there. He's there among the group. And <laughs> these hairs had blended in so well with the, you know, the, the sandy beaches that they just popped up and they were just there and they say, Hey, we, we need to take you somewhere. Let's, let's go and do that. And I was like, this is so cool that, I mean, is this not just a of <laughs> the, the distant, the distant introduction of Basil? Basil just pops <laughs> out of the grass too. And it's just like, Hey. <laughs> You do need help fighting. I'm here to help you out. I love this kind of um, characteristic of the the uh, the hairs. It's so much fun. I wish we got more of them like they they definitely Mm -hmm. feel like ancillary characters in this story. Um, but man, I see that thumbnail art for this chapter of the hair face up <laughs> close. And I was just so I was like, yes, we're finally getting some hairs. Um, th- we're about to get a lot more badger action. So that kind of helps to make up for the lack of hairs. Yes, but, uh, this trio is so fun.
1: I love the establishment of the hairs as being kind of part of the workforce and kind of the society of Salam I also think these three hairs are super fun because they all talk over each other. Um, you never see just any one of them speak alone. It's always trubs weather and fring like they are this trio of like buddy shore cops and they just kind of show up (laughs) and they do their thing. Um, yeah, I think they're, they're great little characters
0: yeah and jake's does a good job of even having them kind of complete a single sentence like jake's is writing a whole sentence but it's broken up to three lines and each of them are saying those lines and I, it, you're right it's it's very clever and then i think he just kind of gets sick of it and is like they say this all at the same time and you know like he kind of just <laughs> for abbreviation he does that with another character where he starts using the um he starts using their initials <laughs> which is just i'm like jake what <laughs> are yes, you doing why right. are you doing this man I think he just got sick of typing it out and was like, Hey, I'll just call him something else. Um, (laughs) but you're totally uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. um, Let's talk about Bane because um, Bane is a very interesting twist to Sarmina's story, and he literally comes out of nowhere. And it made me think a little bit of Clooney because Clooney is really a traveling mercenary, very similar to Bane, who is just looking for um, looking for what will better him. And Bane basically does that in in Cotier. He comes in and he sees the fortress and he's with his men saying, this is where we're going to be. This is where we're going to stay. He's very quickly hatching a plan for this fortress, just like Clooney was and it made me think you know there are there are there, uh, is this a common thing of survival within redwall where you have these marching bands these mercenary bands who are willing to um to to uh try to partner with but always you know stab in the back individuals in order to get what they need
1: yeah i think i think to your point um this is kind of a common trope right um I think that the world of Mossflower in some ways is quite cruel. I don't think Jake's is trying to make some statement about the world being cruel. It's just kind of the nature of this kind of untamed, unsettled land. There are a lot of people who are just roaming around who don't necessarily have the skill set or or don't want to develop the skill set to be self-sufficient. Um I read Bane like a wandering band of untrustworthy Ronin and he just kind of comes in and he kind of takes up this mercenary work for Sarmina while also thinking of himself as a a warlord, you know, a kind of wandering warlord. Um, And as a result, you know, there's kind of a, a unique rivalry that, that, crops up between Sarmina and Bane. I love this kind of late book edition, you know, as as kind of another moment where Sarmina really is trying to do anything she can to hold power, which means yeah. taking on some very unsavory types if it means that she can bolster her military might. And Bane is pretty effective. Um but I also think he's scary, right? Like Yeah he's not afraid of breaking some rules of combat if it means he's going to get what he wants.
0: Yeah, and that's specifically through him saying that he'll set fire to Mossflower, which, as we talked about in Redwall, setting fire to the to Mossflower is detrimental to both parties. It doesn't really help anyone out because Mossflower provides a lot of resources and food to um, to the who who's there and so by destroying that it's really scorch earth tactics it, there's yeah. there's really not a big winner from it but bane is coming in and saying to sarmina i'll do the thing that you can't do and i know it will be effective and i know that we will come out on top and because of that she has to be smart enough to know that if he's willing to go through that kind of extent um the war crimes mm-hmm. as you mentioned then he will most likely do that to her and her men um it's it's a very interesting inclusion. I I will say that he just pops out of nowhere, which is kind of a critique I have for this. Is that um, literally he just strolls into Couture and is like, "Hey, I'm here. Let's make it. Let's make a deal." Um, I it's a twist that I did not see coming.
1: Yeah, I was surprised at his inclusion in the later part of the book. I don't remember Bane from my first read. Twenty years ago, um, so it was kind of interesting. I think for me um, to, to rediscover Bane's character a little bit, but I also liked it. Um, I think that, yeah, again, it kind of shows some of Sarmina's character, and he's an interesting enough kind of secondary, tertiary villain. Um, I wouldn't have minded, you know, a bit more Bane in the book. I agree. Yeah. And I will mention Bane is also a
0: fox. This is the first time that we've really seen a fox warlord, like with uh, Fortunata and Chicken Hound and uh, Selena. Uh, was that her name? Selena? Uh, ooh, I'm blinking on her name. <laughs> Uh oh!
1: For me talking, it uh,
0: Cela. It's Cela. It's not CELA. Cela. For me talking so much crap about Sila in the last episode, I hope I get a little flack for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just, just a little bit. Someone needs to come after me, just a little bit. Um, but I. I think it's really interesting that we see this new aspect of foxes specifically with Bane being a warlord. I like how you put that where he is ruthless. Um, he is sly like most of the foxes we've encountered are. But man, is he is he ruthless? I, I will kind of say that so far, I think he's the most um, brandished evil that we've seen in any of the books so far. Like obviously Clooney was bad, but um, yeah, I, I, he, I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know if that's, uh, I, I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it.
1: No, I mean, I think you're right. Um, this is a fox that we haven't seen before. We've seen the kind of fewer foxes. Now we're going to start to see, like, what a real evil fox is, you know, kind of going to look like. Um, right. Hold on to, hold on to your hats, because he's definitely not the most evil fox in the series. Um, oh but, man, you're right. Okay. Ooh, I, okay. This is, this is the part of the podcast where I'm going to get a lot of
0: flack from people. So, uh, you can just DM DM me on Instagram <laughs> or
1: send your complaints
0: <laughs> to our email books and badgers at gmail.com.
1: Uh, I'll take it all. <laughs> well, in chapter 35, Martin and his travelers enter Salamandastron, where they meet mighty bore the fighter. Boar seems to know a lot about the crew, but he doesn't give straight answers about how he knows so much. Boar and Logalog discuss Ripfang, a sea rat who has his eyes set on Dastron. Boar vows to reforge Martin's sword. Oh, man. From here on out, I have
0: so much to say. Um, I always have a lot to say, but this, I, I think we could record an an hour-long episode purely talking about Zalmadastrin. And I think that we're going to have to do, like, a Badger lore episode because I don't think we can cover it all here. Um, It, this is... A, a very memorable introduction and bore mm-hmm. bore's presence and salmon being really a forge is what we learn when they they come in they they kind of learn that the heart of the volcano itself is it's not really a volcano it's a superheated forge where Boar is making legendary weapons i, I don't know yeah. how else you yeah he's making these these exquisite weapons and he's soliciting help from um the hares and he's equipped with a supernatural a magical knowledge of 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 the world around him um it's almost like he's uh a, a god like in this town like
1: <laughs> oh man
0: yeah it's it's wild um and I, the, the 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 grand grandness as to how Jake writes. This is so captivating. I almost jumped to Amazon to just buy Salman Dasher in the book and start reading it right at this moment. I'm not even kidding because I was like this. I want so much more of this. Um, it is so cool. And then the final final point I'll make is that the promise the reforge um, reforge Martin sword is we we see more of that in the next chapter so I don't want to spoil it but that is such a cool moment because he kind of he kind of corners Martin to ask him some questions into like him being a warrior and then he makes this promise and then the chapter kind of ends it's so (laughs) like I'm so hyped for (laughs) like I I think when I got here it was like you know late at night I needed to go to bed and I was like I'm powering through there's no way I can just end (laughs) where I am I have to keep reading um i've talked i've talked a
1: lot i want to hear hear your thoughts on no i mean i mean you're totally right boar it's it's kind of crazy because boar is such a small portion of this book if you really think about it but the role he plays is so monumental that i don't think there's even enough space for anything else in the book to happen it's it's wild how his presence is just so magnificent um, to your point, you know I don't I don't see him as like a a god necessarily, but I do see him as like like this is our first real warlord like like the first like real genuine this is kind of magnificent power. Um, we saw a bit of that, just a slender glimpse of that from uh, Verdaga. Green eyes and the way yeah. that he kind of mm-hmm. rules, you know, but there is this kind of royalty, this kind of um regality that some characters get in in these books. And I think Badger Lords are the ones that, that are frequently imbued with this kind of mystic regality he has a lot of tricks
0: up his sleeve too the reason why i said like he's the god in the mountain is because he literally has an echo chamber which he can speak (laughs) out of and he even tells martin hey you need to cover your ears because this is going to be loud but then he i think it's in the next chapter he makes a mistake of yelling in that chamber and it sends martin reeling because of the (laughs) amplification of this badger's roar that's that's why i mean like he he's kind of set up to be this god of the mountain because of the presence he has in this area the mystique that salmon has about being this you know this uh this fire island i think or the lizard island um and uh and you being able to see i mean we've seen them traveling from the marshes they can see the distant fires of this forge that far away i didn't really know what to expect when we got to salmon like I I had a general idea as to how it is because I've seen some art online and, you know, I see the Mm cover to Lord Brocktree. Like I had an idea of how it was, but it's it's very simple in its design of like what Salmond is. However, it is so cool, man. (laughs) Like I love (laughs) this scene so much. I'm I'm a huge fan. I'm so glad we named the podcast Books and Badgers after the (laughs) Badgers. It was it was a good choice on my end, uh, so I'll take credit for that all day.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, I I mean I don't know what more to add other uh, than I I just from from the moment we meet Boar, I'm like man, I know this is a guy who's going to just leave a huge impression over the rest of the book, and his his part is so short and yet he's so <laughs> religiously badass. Um, yeah, I just. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Man, I just love everything about it. I don't. I don't know if you saw, but in our um,
0: review episode, um, when we do the ratings for heroes and villains of the book, I upgraded Bor to uh, a, a hero for us to review. I know that his presence is so small in this book, and we'll get to the reason why. But I think we need to give him a rating. I think we need to compare mm-hmm. him on the same scales we do Martin and Matthias. Um, I, I really think that he needs the presence uh, on that list.
1: Yeah, you know what? I I agree. I'll, I'll definitely rate them when we get to it. In Chapter 36, an early morning raid on the quorum leaves several dead, Skipper and Lady Amber injured, and three of the senior moles stranded in their tunnels. Bella, fearful of discovery, begins searching for a secondary sanctuary, in the event Brock Hall is compromised. I had uh, kind of a pin earlier about um Skipper
0: and Lady Amber, you know, n- not not bowing from a challenge. This is that challenge. The fact that they are just um they have the surprise attack sprung on them, that they take some pretty heavy casualties and the fact that they have individuals um that are part of the quorum that die. Um yeah. They're they're they are having to kind of leave some of them stranded. We kind of learned that the four moles that are d- digging the tunnel, they're unable to get out because of this attack that happens. And Lady Amber loses her ear. A fact yeah. that Jake's mentions any interaction we have with Lady Amber. It's kind of mentioned this wound that that happens to her. Um, I I found this a, a very interesting uh, turn of events for the, the kind of quorum story. Um, I have the, the question for you though. I do not understand why Bella has to leave. Like I understand from the aspect that maybe maybe if Brock Hall was to be found um, that they they need to be able to have a kind of backup plan. but I'm curious I, I want to ask you or I'm kind of curious to your thoughts, do you think this is um, kind of leads up to the importance of Redwall, like why Redwall had to be built? is this like the very beginning of that is that why this has you know jake's kind of includes this is that like as cool as brock hall is if brock hall was to be found it is over for the quorum yeah and that's why redwall has to be made
1: yeah i think this is um this is kind of the the focal point here because bella kind of realizes right like basically if sarmina finds them she will kill them all there's little chance of getting out without just a a brutal fight and so i think she kind of realizes like there is more we can accomplish together and the reason to leave brock hall um which is interesting because i think she announces it to the rest of the quorum that you know she thinks like it's time for us to go and skipper and amber are in disagreement clearly they have other things on their minds uh as we'll come to find but you know bella kind of recognizes like we have a society here that is too precious to lose so if push comes to shove and we must leave mossflower we will leave and then we'll come back and we'll take what's ours when uh, Sarmina realizes that she's, she can't, she won't be able to hold this land for herself. Um, and I think she and Abbess Germain do leave. They leave to the East. Um, yeah. And, I, and so, you know, to your point, yeah, this is kind of the birth of Redwall that this is the birth of the, you know, kind of recognizing there, there is a need for a defensible space, a defensible location where these peaceful creatures can live in harmony together but it can't be brock hall because you know brock brock hall doesn't have the defense it's not defendable and the creatures of the quorum right now you know they they don't really have the upper hand especially with the addition of bane and bane's forces Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I was kind of that's what I was kind of thinking. I I guess the reason
0: why this I have a lot of questions about this is that it seems very unbadger like for Bella to do this because she's saying we need to find we need to have a backup plan because Brock Hall cannot last for forever. If it gets f- found out, you, you're right. Brock Hall doesn't have any defenses, but at the same time, she knows how Brock Brockhall Brock Hall was founded. It was her ancestry that did this that built this and Mm -hmm. so you would think that she would have a lot of like um i don't know you you would think that she would have a lot of trust and confidence in brock hall as a defense but maybe that's why she's just honest and says like hey we need to find something else because i know that this place couldn't be you know if we were to found out that's it you know that that would be the end of it um i also find it interesting that um amber lady amber and and skipper they kind of give themselves this look at the very end when bella says um you need to stay here don't do anything you need to lay low and they're (laughs) like yes we'll definitely lay low and then kind of wink at each other because they have they have something up their their sleeve i think that this goes to show maybe the 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 cracks in the in the quorum purely from like they there there's no way the quorum is just going to give up and mm-hmm. it's not like Belle is saying that she's just saying we need to leave and come back. Like, yeah. this is this is too dangerous. But it's very clear that the, the rest of the quorum don't believe that they want to fight. They want to keep Mossflower as their home. So maybe yeah. that kind of plays into why Redwall is so important later on. I love these little, you know, uh, th- this little trail that Jake's is kind of including that that lead back to why Redwall is so important because. I do think that without that, the first book starts to fall apart even more um, because you kind of ask yourself, like, why couldn't they just stay in Brock Hall? Like, why couldn't they just have taken over Cotier? Like, why did you have to build the Abbey? And why is the, the Abbey important to this overarching world?
1: I think, too, again, this, this plays into a lot of my feeling about, you know, who who can be a hero? What is a hero? You know, what, what does heroism really look like? And does a society always need a warrior to, to kind of rally behind? Because the the book kind of wants it both ways. One, the book wants Boar, right? It needs Boar. Um, there's like this kind of established idea. Like Martin has gone off to find Boar specifically to bring him back for this fight. And Bella seems convinced that the only way they win is if they get Boar back. But we also see the quorum constantly bandy together and fight back you know they're constantly reaching into their own ranks for heroism it's not as if there is no warrior right but it is as if there is not this kind of symbolic you know kind of uniting spirit yet and i think that red wall eventually will take the place of that symbolic presence. Even if, you know, we see figures like Matthias think like we got to have a warrior, right? Like the warrior is the symbolic spirit. So much of I Think of this process is that process of like finding the warrior and finding the warrior spirit just to discover that we were the warrior spirit all along. Right.
0: Yeah. And I think, I think that plays into, um, Matthias's journey, too, as to why why Matthias needed to be the warrior for Redwall. Like, they all needed someone to kind of rally behind. Um, yeah, I'm going to have to, like, sleep on this and kind of poke some holes in my own theory a little bit more because I, I think that there's a lot to argue against the importance of Redwall, and I think maybe I'm just trying to project that um, importance through what we're kind of seeing in, in mm-hmm. Mossflower. I really want to... I, I think this idea needs to be uh, tested more with uh, madameo <laughs> yeah so yeah,
1: yeah. I, I think as the series continues i think we should ask ourselves you know is is redwall just a place or is redwall a spirit you know is is, is yeah, redwall you know something other than just the place yeah i love that idea well in chapter 37 in salomon Dastron, Martin accompanies Boar the Fighter to the resting place of Lord Brocktree. There, Martin learns that the Badgers have kept a prophecy for untold generations. Boer finds some bit of lost prophecy that sets him into a rage. Nevertheless, Bohr returns the reforged sword of Luke to Martin the weapon having been forged from the stuff of the very stars. Martin is transformed and pledges his return to Mossflower to confront Sarmina. Oh my gosh, I have
0: so much to say about this, but I think (laughs) if I talked first, I would take over
1: all the time. So Trevor, you have to start with this. Dude, I love a... (laughs) man i love a i love a prophecy trope right i love this kind of uh, call it a soft magic but you know this like the knowledge beyond knowledge um and man do i love some cursed knowledge you know like the stuff that you shouldn't know or the stuff that you do know that that kind of cements a tragic destiny because we know as soon as boar finds his little bit of prophecy about about you know what's going to happen in boar's life we know it's not going to turn out the way that we want it to and i love that sort of thing i love that boar confronts his destiny and he his initial you know kind of thought of it is like i'm super mad at this i'm so angry about this Um, he's like oh hell no yeah (laughs)
0: like he's really mad about it yeah yeah
1: but I also love, you know, this this idea of like again, like the Lord of Salamandastren is just this being that is mythological in scope in itself. Um, we see that with his incredible strength. We see the resting place of Lord Brocktree, who is decked out in ceremonial badger armor and given this symbolic presence in the mountain itself the reforging of luke's sword into the martin sword which is nearly indestructible because it's made of an alloy from the stars itself all of this stuff just plays into these kind of like pseudo magical tropes that just lend this this again this symbolic presence this symbolic mystery that elevates the normal to the the almost super normal or the supernatural and man, do I just dig this in any trope, you know, any literature I see.
0: Yeah, definitely. This is, um, I, I, the same thing about the sword reforged. I love this idea so much. And it, it it's something that we see with uh, Andoril in Lord of the Rings, like the oh, sword yes. reforged to make the new warrior is such a cool trope. And I love the fact that it was, it was crafted from meteor or, Um, that had crashed on the beaches of, uh, I think it's on the beaches of of Samandastron, right? This is such a cool moment. And I love how um, Boar brings him into the chamber of Lord Brocktree, where it's, it, it's kind of like when Matthias goes into Martin's tomb, right? Like, yes. it feels something so similar. It's a hidden, it, it, you know, it's hidden into the actual cracks of the mountain itself that bore rips open. This is just such a cool moment that we see with, um, with Martin. And he sees himself in the destiny that has been in the foundation, I guess, of, of Salmon Dastrian. He sees himself in Gompf and Denny um scrolled onto the walls of of Lord Brocktree's chamber this is where I think the whole idea of destiny and the soft magic really starts to come to life within Redwall and I cannot wait to see how this unravels across the rest of the books because we know that there's so much more that's in this room and so many other stories of destiny destiny to be told and I want to know how the heck this lines up with Matthias Like, I'm going to be honest, this got me way more interested in Matthias's journey. Um, because there's gaps now we know that we know what happens to Martin, but we also know the re embodiment of Martin happens with Matthias. And so I'm, I'm, I'm like eager to get to, (laughs) you know, this, this kind of lineage that we see, but I have, I have the question again, I have to preface, I have not read all the Redwall books. Um, your, your your host that has not read the books but the the sword reforged this is rat death isn't it yes like this is yeah. yeah that's so interesting i i i'm i'm like in thrilled about that but at the same time like i wish this was in Redwall because it's such <laughs> a cool thing you know like yeah man martin's sword is important to matthias's journey but this is put so much more gravity to the story of Martin and what that sword means um, and how it is literally forged from the stars. Like, ah, it's so cool in the notes. I just put uh, my absolute favorite part, fate, destiny forged by the stars. It's so, it's so
1: cool. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's totally great. Um, When, when I read that the sword, you know, is, is literally crafted from a meteorite. Um, and it's nearly indestructible. You know, it like it 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 becomes this legendary heirloom in this book. Uh and I remember reading it when I was like 13 or whatever, and and like this is the most badass thing uh, you know, on the planet. This is yeah. mm-hmm. this is Redwall's lightsaber, you know, like this is <laughs> this is just you know that that kind of legendary heirloom. Um that you know, comes to kind of define a like a a total symbolic, you know, kind of warrior's tool.
0: Yeah, I just hope that Matameo, he doesn't just take the
1: sword and throw it off the side of a cliff. (laughs) (laughs) Like in Star Wars, that would be really disappointing. Right. I I think I think we're going to enjoy Matameo for, you know, kind of returning to a a more matured uh, Matthias. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think um, I know that we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves with Matameo. Mayo. Um, I think that this this part of Mossflower both got me more excited for Madame Mayo um, and, and what that journey entails. And I think it made me like Redwall a little bit better. I know that I was pretty hard on Redwall in our review episode as to some of the things I did. I didn't like about it. Um, but I think the things I didn't like about it, this helps out. I just wish that we saw this in that first book. Like if you, um, are listening to this podcast and for whatever reason, <laughs> I don't know why, but if you only read the first book, you need to just, you know, this it's like, I need to recommend this book more to anyone who's only read the first book. Cause I think that this helps. It helps you, it it's such a good book that helps you get into the series, but then I think it helps to strengthen Redwall and the things that are not good in Redwall that it's almost like these two books need to be read, you know, like together. I I agree. Yeah. Um
1: they they complement each other so well. Well uh,
0: it, that's way better
1: way to say it, yeah, to compliment each other. <laughs> in chapter 38, Skipper and Lady Amber wage a full-on assault on Bane and Sarmina. As the vermin make way to discover Brock Hall. the battle is entirely one sided and extremely deadly as Sarmina holds up inside Katir Lady Amber sets fire to the fortress.
0: Yeah, I don't have a whole lot of notes on this, except that this, uh, you know, going back to this is the challenge that um, that Skipper and Lady Amber make sure is answered. They have that attack on them and they make sure to know that they they are not going anywhere. And the idea of the ruthlessness that Bane would have on the um, the quorum in Mossflower, they return that kind of ruthlessness in a way that makes way more sense. Them attacking the fortress with fire, which is cobblestone, right? Like it's made mm-hmm. out of cobblestone and, and redstone. So they know that the fire is going to weaken and terrorize the uh, coteir in a way that is not destructive to their end goal which is to, you know they they want to keep mossflower as a as a place to live but they know they can you know cause a lot of havoc for um sarmina and bane in this instance in their attack i loved this inclusion i you know it's a really short chapter they kind of come in they have this battle um it's also gruesome too because you know they are rats and stoats that are popping their heads up to see what's going on and that's the last thing they see (laughs) jakes (laughs) is very explicit about how some of these um are sniped and then they even kind of go over to the Corms' perspective where um uh, lady amber squirrels are you know you keeping drawn bows waiting for heads to pop up and then they, they get them. And so it's, it, it's a really cool inclusion into the story. You know, something that I, I think Jake's has really leveled up from Redwall in, in the attacks and the sieges that happen on Redwall. Like, I think this is another instance of him just showing another aspect of that in his writing is, it helps to convey a lot of action and intention and tension in what's going on. Um, but yeah, I just, I just love the, the challenge answered. It's, it's a really <laughs> cool inclusion.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't have much to add to this. I, th- I think we're going to inspect it a little bit more closely in our big roundup. Um, except to say yeah. like, I mean, <laughs> Skipper and Lady Amber are my favorite two characters, uh, in, in terms of their partnership through the whole book. And, um, I, man i just really love this chapter um where they just rain hell on katir and it's very clear like you know if you want to play for keeps we can play for keeps you know um I, i i just think they're they're warrior spirit becomes more and more hardened um as this book goes along and and this is the kind of culmination of their you know kind of total experience with war um and and it's clear like if we're gonna go scorched earth um you're gonna feel that effect in chapter 39 bore teaches martin new ways of the sword training him as only a warrior can as the hares show Martin's band new secrets of Dastron, Boar spots Rip Fang's ship the bloodwake looming in the sea beyond the mountain. Boar issues a challenge to Rip Fang and prepares to do battle at night and alludes to a prophecy soon to be fulfilled,
0: <laughs> yeah, for a scene in Dastron, I don't have a. I don't have a whole lot to add to this, except that I just want more boar action. Like <laughs> his command of what happens when blood wake. I think it's one of the hairs. I don't remember which one says it, but even says to boar like you know he's just goading you he's just trying to get you to he's just trying to stir you up to come out and open battle and boar's like oh he's gonna get it like he, <laughs> rip things gonna get it there's no way uh that that it's it's gonna happen and so he issues that challenge through the what we see is this incredible echo chamber that happens through the mountain um and, yeah. and his battle cry um it's such a cool moment. I know that this is setting up a lot as to what's going to happen in the later part of the book. Um, but man, I just I love
1: this. This I, is really cool. So one of the things that I love so much about Boar is that it it's almost like Boar is in an, in an entirely different book. Like <laughs> Boar is doing his own thing. He's got his own whole quest line. And we're just getting the end of his story yeah I I think you I think you nailed it
0: yeah we're just getting a little glimpse which is why I say I want more boar like I want there to be a book about boar because I would read that in a night I (laughs) it's the best um I also think it's kind of cool that Martin I didn't think about this until now but I think it's really cool that Martin gets more training as a warrior I mean he's obviously the best fighter that the quorum has everyone acknowledges his strength and Um, his resolve and his uh, stoicism. However, I think that, you know, him learning these new techniques from Bore, and he kind of gets his butt kicked from Bore too. And Bore teaches (laughs) him, he's like, hey, it's actually pretty simple. I can show you how to parry in this way. And it's just really cool to see him leveling up as, um, you know, this kind of like, uh i think there's an actual genre of fantasy that's just like level up fantasy where (laughs) the hero's leveling up it kind of feels like that with what
1: Martin's going through i mean i also feel like the oh sorry go ahead no i'm i just you know i feel like boar boar is martin's obi-wan kenobi if obi-wan were just ready to tear some heads you know yeah if obi-wan kenobi was just like a you know a
0: badass Conan the Barbarian, you know, like (laughs) Warlord. Uh yeah. That would be very uh different Star Wars for sure. But um yeah, I just I just want more boar. And his um absolute hatred for Rip Thing, um, I think is warranted too. You know, like there's it's it's a very plain black and white good versus evil that's being painted. Um, but I I really like that we're getting to see the, the very end of it.
1: I think that Jake's does some brilliant stuff with the inclusion of Boar. Because as much as I wish I had way more Boar in this, Jake's just kind of tells us, like, there's enmity here. Um, the political, uh, you know, kind of importance of Salam is that it acts as the line of defense against these hordes of sea rats that would want to march on mossflower and 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 salamandastron is the first line of defense against this stuff that's why it exists and boar's been fighting this fight for a very long time and jakes isn't really interested in like we're gonna go on a whole journey here to figure out salamandastron we're just kind of like you know martin like I said, Martin just shows up at the end of this conflict <laughs> and, and yeah. we're not going to see a whole lot of background about this conflict. We're just given the stakes and Martin's just there to witness these final moments. Um, I also absolutely love the exchange between the two fighters, like as Martin's learning, like he's just seriously outclassed. Bohr is a fighter on an entirely separate level. And when Boar issues his kind of prophecy challenge to Rip Fang, Martin comes to him and, and Martin knows like warrior to warrior, you left lines out of that prophecy. And Boar's like, I did. And nobody else gonna yeah, know where right. the lines are. And we never find out. I mean, we, we figure it out, right? We piece it together. Um, but man, do I love that
0: yeah you' i i really forgot about that and that is a really important moment for martin because he does challenge um Boer to say like you know you're not being truthful in what you're you, there's there's a lot more to it and um it, we we kind of see a mutual respect of martin later on in in the next chapter where Boar has a specific request that the rest of the team does not want to carry out and martin says we have to like there's more that's at stake what's happening than you re- realize we have to we have to continue with force request. So, um, I don't want to spoil that. We should definitely get to that chapter and talk yeah. about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Chapter 40 In the aftermath of the attack on Katir, further division grows between Bane and Sarmina. As their uneasy alliance splinters, the four Mole and others trapped in the flood tunnels are rescued and returned to Brock Hall. The Quorum settle down and wait for Sarmina's army to further break apart. Meanwhile Bella of Brockhall discovers Gingerveer's new farm where he and his mate Sandingham have settled outside Sarmina's reach. All right this is where I jump in and say why are we spending time on this farm why
0: are we spending time with this I want to <laughs> see the boar battle what are we doing <laughs> talking about Gingerveer's farm I'm glad that he met a nice uh, a nice lady that he can you know have his life together I put in my notes, why are we, why are we talking about this? This is probably the uh, biggest critique I have against the book so far is mm. just the fact that this whole journey of Bella going out and finding Gingerveer and finding this secondary place, I guess comes to pay off at the very end, but man, this feels like just
1: filler to me. Um, it, it does feel like a pretty hard diversion and it, I do think it slows down the pace a little bit. Um, we know that we need this information at some point, I guess, because this is the same farm that Matthias will visit on his quest. Um, this is where Jindjivir, um kind of settles his family line, and we meet a descendant of Jindjivir in Redwall. Um, him and Captain Snow hang out. And uh, so that's why this is here. I, I don't agree as to why it was necessary, but it is what it is.
0: Yeah, I know. I just, I guess like it's I'm like, why couldn't we just put this later? Like I, <laughs> it, going back to Bella's motivation of trying to find like a, you know, a backup plan for Brock, Brock Hall, yeah. um, This is that backup plan and what they, what they find. But this doesn't really do much to serve. I'm like, why can't we just include this in like a wrap up or something? Like, why does, right. this, why does this have to be here? Um, I don't really have much more to contribute to this chapter, except that it's nice that the formals get out, you know, because they uh, remember they're kind of trapped. Um, they're building this tunnel and they're trapped in the tunnel um, because of what the battle of right um, up above them was going on. So they're able to rescue them. They're reunited with the rest of the quorum. And I believe
1: the um, the tunnels done, right? Uh, yeah, they, they complete the the flood tunnels um they they managed to escape and you know this is uh, a moment of resiliency i think that we we see from the moles anyway well uh back to the action in cha- chapter 41 boar the fighter and his hares must meet in combat with ripfang outside salamandastran the fight is bloody, but Martin and company managed to take the blood wake in victory. Bore contends with Ripfang and his horde, but is killed for his valiant efforts at Katir. Sarmina and Bane undermine one another using all of their underhanded wiles.
0: Oh man. I know that this is a very brief summary, but boy, oh boy, does a lot <laughs> happen in this chapter? Like this is the, um, this is the cool, coolest fight I think I've read. This is in so... any, oh man, <laughs> in any young adult, um, uh, YA literature. This is the coolest fight that I think I've read. I know that that's <laughs> maybe a bold statement, but <laughs> I think that the tension that's built up in the last chapter and what we see happen here, and just absolute brutality of seeing boring action is, <laughs> it's. <laughs> It's cool. I, I I know that we got to talk about flower and violence, and we're going to talk about that in the review episode, but this is such a cool scene. Before the, the fight starts, Boar tells the group, um, hey, you need to follow my command. And keep pushing forward. And if you do not, I will treat you as an enemy. You're as good as an enemy to me. <laughs> and that's the challenge that he gives them. So when they are surrounded by Rip Fang and his horde of uh, these sea rats, who are ruthless, by the way, they're 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 they're, <laughs> they're ruthless fighters. And then they get surrounded, and they're going through these heaves of the of of the battles. The um when they're just like you know basically having to slaughter these. Um, rats on the beach Uh, boar issues the command run for blood fake. you or sorry blood wake you have to run for it and push forward and I'll be right behind you and they all run and they realize that boar is not with them mm-hmm. he's in the back and Denny and um, uh, gomp say hey we need to go get him we need to go back and Martin says you you know you have to keep going forward because of you gave him your word and I think that this is that mutual respect that Martin has yeah. for Bor as a, a warrior. He knows what it means to be a warrior and what the sacrifice is to be a warrior. And he knows that Bor is sacrificing himself, maybe part of destiny, maybe not. We can talk about that. But he is he is sacrificing himself for the betterment of Martin's quest to be able to you know get back to. Um, the quorum for the betterment of Mossflower. And he knows that this is, he's doing something that's bigger than himself. And I think that's such a cool moment that I just, I love that Jake's includes that and, you know, has that little moment between um, Boar and 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 Martin. Um, it, it's the, the it. This is just such a cool. I'm like stuttering because I can't even come up with the words. I just think this is such a, such a cool moment. I think that this will probably be one of the most standout moments that I have in all of Redwall. I mean, maybe that's not true as we get through the other books, but I just can't imagine not not thinking about. This moment is it's very, very special and it's really cool. It's brutal, too. It's super violent. But yeah, OK, I've talked a lot.
1: Let's let's get. No, to it. I, I, you're totally right. Right. And and like Martin has Boar's number clocked, you know, for, from chapters back. Like he knows what Boar's doing and he's the one yeah. who kind of keeps the secret. Um, this is such a cool sequence because it it sets up a a kind of trope for the Badger Lords going forward. Um that that is not dealt with here, but is dealt with in other books, this notion of like how a Badger Lord fights. And Boar is very explicit. like you follow my instructions because as soon as we hit the sand, as soon as I draw my weapon, if you are not on my side, you are you know, you are my enemy. And I think that's because Badger Lords, fight like berserkers they go into this blood rage um where they're just kind of these juggernauts these unstoppable juggernauts uh and that's boar that's boar's you know kind of fighting spirit um it even says at the end of the chapter as martin is pulling away with blood wake and you know the the rest of the survivors from this assault on solomon dastron that boar's spirit <laughs> it, like lingers on the beach and he's still fighting that fight um i man just what a magnificent you know concept
0: yeah there's some beautiful pros in here too like um them sliding into the surf with the sound of the battle still ringing in the ears as you kind of mentioned um and uh we kind of see a little bit of that in Part three, which which we'll get to, um, but yeah, there's there is a lot of beauty in this battle. My question to you, Trevor, is: I know that you're doing this tracker um, of how many deaths are in this book. How do you account for them saying that the the
1: the beach is littered with bodies? Like, the, I I won't lie to you. This is this was the hardest chapter to interpret um, because we know that the body count is high here we are not given specific numbers just illusions so i kind of have to make my best guess as to like you know how many is in a horde how many hordes are are kind of uh killed in this fight because there's so much death we're it's made very abundantly clear creatures die in this fight Um, So I had to make some guesses. I I had some concrete numbers that were based on the literal prose that Jake's gives us as to, you know, like how many bodies do we actually see that are countable versus, you know, what is the kind of allusion to the carnage of this fight? Um, Because he's not going to he's not a Brandon Sanderson, right? He's not going to show us every (laughs) single sword stroke of this fight gives us the big sweeping idea and lets us fill it in. I think this is also why I love reading a fight scene from Brian Jakes. He knows how to tell us the spirit of a conflict in absolutely gorgeous prose. Yeah, he's really economical
0: in his uh, in his prose here, too, because you're right. We we get some pretty gruesome some pretty gruesome scenes from this battle, including one where a sea rat tries to grab Martin and he steps aside. And it says that he, the sea rat went from being one to two. (laughs) So we know that he gets, you know, hewed in half, but um, yeah, I I think you're right. I've, I've read a lot of Brandon Sanderson and uh, I don't know if you can consider him YA or not. That's, I guess it's debatable, but I will say I, I really, I don't think you need to have a step by step account of everything that's going on. We get the sense of this battle. We understand the scale of this battle, and it really only takes place in a couple of paragraphs. But man, it's so powerful. I really think that I I, I said that said this in our first episode for season one. Or I'm sorry, for season two in our first episode, I mentioned that Jake's went into, a, you know, a time chamber and leveled up his writing. And I think it's really apparent in this because the pros, the pros are great. Um, he has a, a lot that's packed into it. You you're mentioning things that I forgot that I'm kind of looking back to see some of it. Um yeah, I could gush about this this chapter for another 40 minutes. Uh, <laughs> but we shouldn't do that. Uh, we should leave a lot of conversation for yeah. our other contributors.
1: I will just yeah. say, uh man, I could hear a soundtrack in my head when I was <laughs> reading this this chapter. It was it's so in my head, it's so cinematic, you know, like I know exactly how I would direct <laughs> you know, shot for shot how I would direct this fight. This feels like the uh this is like the Minas Tirith of of uh, yeah. Mossflower, man. It's so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I would love to play this in like a video game or something because it would be it would be really cool.
1: Yeah. Well, in chapter forty two, uh, uh, aboard the Bloodwake, Martin and Company free Ripfangs' galley slaves, which leads to Martin being reunited with his old friend Timbalisto. Logalog discovers a map leading the way back into Mossflower from the coast, and Martin pledges his sword arm to the fight back in the Mossflower.
0: <laughs> All right, so no spoilers for Timbalisto. Um, <laughs> I this is that name that uh, <laughs> Jake's just starts randomly abbreviating to TB later on. Yeah. Um, i was like who's tb and then i was like oh it's tim ballisto Uh, which is i don't know (laughs) is this a is this
1: a jake's trope um you know should we just call this the so far as i remember uh tim ballisto is the only one that he he truncates like this so funny it's so funny (laughs) yeah
0: old tb um I he does he does not come in in Martin's story at all until now. Right?
1: Yeah, because I, mean, I,
0: I was trying to read back to see him like we, we're not. We have no mention of Timbalisto being lost or anything. We do. So, actually,
1: we have one reference where I think Martin is talking to Gonf sp- specifically about his life up in the north, and he makes a reference to having a friend uh, or having friends up there, and and one of them was Timbalisto, but Timbalisto went missing, and he had nothing left, so that's why he came back. Um, so there, it's, ah, like, okay. it's one line um, that he references Timbalisto, and then here Timbalisto shows up. Um, this is a character that clearly is important to the story of Martin the Warrior, but but to my knowledge, he's only in this book very briefly. I think he shows up in a different book, though. He does show up in a different book. And I know that because of the Redwall Wiki,
0: because I, I pulled up the Wiki for Tim Blisto because I didn't know if he showed up earlier. Um, I'm going to have to keep an eye out for that if I ever do a reread of this, because I, I'd be curious to see, um, or maybe I'll just go back and try to see your reference to that. Um, this is a pretty powerful moment, though, for Martin. Like He's very moved by finding his friend, and Log Log finds a lot of the missing shrews that are aboard the ship, um, a lot of his shipmates that were captured, um, are galley slaves for, for blood wake. Um, so I, I think this is a really cool inclusion. We just saw this big battle. So it's important to have some kind of respite for our heroes. That's a, that's pretty common thing, um, that we see in kind of the, the fantasy tropes. Um, but I, I think that they, that Jake's does a good job of really grounding these characters, um, in this, this the way that they're reunited with some of these other friends. I I, I like that this is in the book, and I think it, it's craftful that he put it in. Um, I just I I don't like Tim Blisto's name. <laughs> uh, I wonder what it means. We'll, we'll talk about that later on when we figure <laughs> out what it means. But the minute I saw his name, I was like, you got to be kidding me, man. Like Rip <laughs> is such a cool name. Blood Wake a Baller yeah. name for a ship if I ever own a ship, which I won't, but if I ever <laughs> own a ship, I'm definitely gonna name it Bloodweight because it's just such a cool name. Um, and then we have a uh, old TB here,
1: yeah. So. He <laughs> said, I do love Timbalisto's name, it's like if somebody wanted to name me Trevor Trebuchet, uh. <laughs> Yeah, or Colin Cannonball. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh,
0: <laughs> right. it's it's very much the same. Okay, well you, you said it, so we'll we'll just go ahead and spoil. It's uh, it's Tim Ballisto is Timber and Ballista, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> With an o Which is funny because
1: it, I mean they, <laughs> we're going to talk about this. We call it a, a ballista, but that's what he describes as a trebuchet. It's it's not. It's even a trebuchet. A, it's one hundred percent. It's a hundred. But I don't know 100%. how you make tim trebuchet
0: into a name so that's why he calls it Ballista. Right.
1: i'm telling you they could have <laughs> yeah they should have just called him trevor shea or something you know like just just throw a little bit of trevor representation in there <laughs> yeah for for you having a uh
0: an, a proper english name you're not really represented in this uh
1: joe <laughs> no, no you're right yeah there's a colin but there's not a trevor
0: yeah yeah um Anyways, I'll pick on Tim Ballista more in our review episode, but I just yeah. had to I, it 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 pulled me out of the story, I won't lie. I I saw his name and I was like, oh bother Jakes. What are you <laughs> doing, man?
1: Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, chapter 43. Sarmina convinces Bane, who is dressed in Ashleg's old cloak, to inspect Katir's gates. But Bane is mistaken for the Pine Martin. And Argular swoops in to eat Bane. The fox and the eagle have a quick fight, but it costs both creatures their lives. Free of Bane, Sarmina turns her attention back to regaining her confidence and strength. As she does so, the quorum complete their flood tunnels and begin the flood of Katir.
0: Yeah, so this... um, I don't really have a whole lot to contribute to this except our exchange about this chapter, because a little peek behind the curtain, we'll try to read before we do these recordings, but we try to read somewhat close to each other so that you know we're caught up and we can jump on mic and be able to talk about some of these things. And um, I, I was kind of asking where you were at, if you were caught up not or not to be able to to record. <laughs> and you said that you had got caught up. So I was like, OK, I need to go and, and I need to finish. But it was prior to this that I mentioned in our Discord about the Chekhov's gun of Ashleg's old cloak. Cause I was like, that has to be that that has to come back around. And the minute that Sarmina started hatching the plan to give Ashleg this cloak, I had texted you saying, is she going to try to get Argular to just eat Bane? Is that how this, (laughs) you know, resolves? I was like, if, if it's not, I mean, I, I, it's very clever of Jake to do that um and it makes sense as to why all these things are here so i'm like trying to piece the puzzles together before i actually read it and if you get to this chapter chapter 43 uh if you're reading the paperback there's the amazing thumbnail (laughs) of uh uh Argular just lifting bane up in the air and so i took that photo and sent it to you trev and said oh my gosh it's happening it, this is totally gonna happen i haven't even read the paragraph yet but i know this is gonna happen um this was such a fun inclusion i <laughs> i love this i i it's the first introduction we get to the mutual death which i think happens more in red wall mm. am i mistaken
1: of, you know, two creatures kind of killing each other off. Yeah, two yeah. creatures
0: that 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 go at it and they kill each other off um, because I, I and I'm I'm I think that we'll maybe talk about it more when if this starts happening, we should call it we should have another trope name for it. I, I like that we you know, did like the shadow trope. so we should call it something like that. But I this is just a very clever inclusion into the book, and it's set up so early on we learn about ash leg we learn about um Argular wanting to eat ash leg because he's a pine martin um and then you know <laughs> the cloak being the identifier it going to agular agular and um and uh, bane <laughs> killing each other and then uh, i think it's brog goes and finds the sword he goes yeah. and gets um bane's curved sword and so it's just kind of this like legacy inclusion of these properties of these individuals but my question to you, Trevor, I want to know, how do you feel about Ashleg this being the end of his story? Bane is the one that gets got. It's not right. Ashlake; He
1: just goes off. Yeah. How do you feel about We that? never find out what happens to Ashlake. In fact, he's he's just gone. He just he deserts and, and that's it. That's the end of his story. I feel on the one hand, if there's going to be a payoff for Argular at all in this story. I suppose this is as good as any. Um, I think it's so funny that there is all of this convergence of details that lead to this particular confrontation, which is fatal for both Bane and for Argular, who are kind of the secondary villains of this book, if you will. That being said, you know, with with the payoff being what it is, I really struggle with whether or not any of this was necessary at all for the book. Um, Oh, (laughs) I I didn't see you going that way. (laughs) No, I mean, like, really, because it's very clever and it's very funny. I do. I do love that this is the payoff, right? Like we've been setting up the whole book. Argular just wants to eat ash leg. And then he thinks he's got Ashleg. And the irony is that Ashleg gets away. He just is never accounted for. Um, and, and Argular and Bane take each other out to Sarmina's advantage, which I, I think is very clever of Sarmina. Um, I love that this is really yes. a victory for Sarmina, because I think that in this book she is a menacing character, but she doesn't have very many wins. Um, And this is an absolute win for her. But I think that, yeah, it's, yeah, I I struggle with like, because Argular is not nearly as interesting, I think, as Asmodeus was. And I think that
0: yeah, I think you have to compare those two. Yeah, like, I, I think that the the big creature lurking about Asmodeus and Argular are the same. I think you're 100% right. It, they have to be compared. And this and, you know, for the both of them are so different. And the payoff is so different in the, the overall story Um, that uh, we have to have him on the the list of villains to compare as well. I, I, I put that on there in our review episode mm-hmm. when we need to mm-hmm. talk about him.
1: Yeah, I think I. I mean, I. I want to be more into Argular than I am, but I think it's because Argular doesn't have the same sense of, of kind of evil or the same you know kind of presence of mysticism. He's just kind of a dumb blind bird, and so, yeah, I. I kind of look at the whole arc of this, and I kind of think: take out Bane, take out Argular. Maybe we lose some of the color that makes this. Fun, you know, that makes it entertaining, but I don't think it affects the plot at all. Yeah, I think it's
0: just a payoff of the details that we got so far. Like, I, I get what you're saying. Like, they don't really do anything to advance the plot much. I mean, Bane is is introduced so quickly, and then he's removed through this action, you mm-hmm. know? Like, so that quickly comes up, and then it's resolved. It doesn't do anything for the quorum. It doesn't really do anything to benefit Sarmina, because now that Bane's gone, she's really just <laughs> at the same place that she was. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah. She, she has more of Bane's men that are under her command, but I believe some of them leave, uh, you know, um, maybe that's not true. Maybe some of them stay around. I I'd have to fact check that, but, um, i i found this the details kind of wrapping up in this way very rewarding i liked that this happens and i thought it was incredibly clever of jakes to have this included but i i you're definitely right in the fact that it really doesn't do much to serve the plot so you could say you know i i i think that you're justified in saying uh, why does this need to be included like yeah <laughs> why is this this part of it um yeah, I think that we need to do spend some time talking about Asmodeus and Argular because this is the second time we've seen this big creature lurking about, and the way that it resolves in in the overall structure of the story are two very different and and very differently impacting, or they they,
1: they impact the story in a very different way. Yeah, um, I think to your point, this is fun that uh, I make no denial this is very entertaining and i i do love it for the fun um but from the the overarching story i just i kind of scratch my head a little bit and i'm like all right now that the fun is over uh, did did (laughs) we we actually need that you know i don't know yeah i i like that ashley got away though um i think i think it's a subversion of expectations and i do think that makes it really fun
0: yeah, I like that he gets away and I like that I, I'm happy that he gets away and I hope he has a, a happy life. Like I'm talking about him like he's a real person, but <laughs> you know, he was tortured by Sarmina in so many ways and was under her thumb and was subservient to her that in, in ways that were just absolutely detrimental to himself. I'm glad he got away and <laughs> and that no harm came to him because I think that that's nice you
1: know like <laughs> it's nice you, that he got away you hope he you hope he went out and he founded a, a farm he got some therapy yeah
0: <laughs> yeah i think it'd be really cruel for me to come on mike and say that i hope the cripple got it in the end you know
1: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> oh that's so i'm weird. glad i'm glad he got away well in chapter 44 Sarmina consolidates her rule over Katir after the death of Bane, but her peace of mind is broken as she hears the sound of trickling water. Outside Katir, the efforts to flood the castle have encountered a significant problem, and Bella does not have faith that the Quorum's plan will work. The Quorum resolved to leave Mossflower if the flooding plan does not come to its full imagined fruition though they resolve to leave together if they do. Meanwhile, Martin and crew, bolstered by a hundred new shrew hands, make progress up the River Moss toward Katir. This is like in Dumb and Dumber when
0: the two are in the van and they say, hey, there's a group of hitchhikers. Pick <laughs> them up. That's how it is in uh, in Woodship. We have a new rename of Bloodwake. That's how it is in Woodship um, with the Log Log Shrew family is that they just stop at the village, give a quick hello, get on the ship. We're going to war <laughs> kind of thing. Uh,
1: I-, I liked that. It's the equivalent of of rolling up in your Corvette and you lower your sunglasses and you say, hey, bitch, get in. We're going to go fight.
0: I I like that uh, Mean Girls reference. Yeah. 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 It's a it. It's good. I I don't really have a whole lot to contribute to this because it's just setting up what will be the final act of of Mossflower. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the hiccup of the, the flooding not happening, I think, is a little bit of a red herring because we know that's not true, um, right? Because, you know, the quorum is seeing that the rivers dried up and that um not as much water is flowing through the tunnel and into Katir. um but we know that's not true on the uh, on from what the weasels and stoats and rats are hearing um with sarmina she's freaked out she thinks that everyone well i guess everyone kind of thinks that she's imagining this. she's having like a psychosis of her fear for water um but we know that it's filling up the lake. It may be happening subtly, but it's happening. Yeah. Um. So I did think that was kind of interesting and a nice hiccup that kind of plays into the very last book. Yeah. Um. But besides that, I don't have much more to contribute.
1: Yeah. You kind of just have to delay the story a little bit so that, you know, everything can kind of line up and then we're going to get the big, the big finale, the final act kickoff. So in the, yeah. Chapter 45, Sarmina's mental health begins unraveling rapidly as she suspects the castle is slowly being flooded, though none of her army will admit to her suspicions. Out in Mossflower, Martin arrives with his company of shrews and former slaves, ready to attack Katir. Martin is finally acknowledged as the legendary warrior destined to save Mossflower. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Uh yeah, kind
0: of the same as the last chapter before. This is just kind of setting up to the final act. One thing that I do really like though is um Sarmina's oh sorry, I just hit the mic. Sarmina's really going crazy. She is mm-hmm. um she's unraveling from every aspect um and the and the water has a big part to play with that, but we also see how everyone is so done with her. They um, Brog spe- uh, especially, and he's in command um, to to um, cultivate a search of the the grounds of Coteer to make sure that there is no water, and um, he blatantly does not want to go down to the lake that the gloomer was held at because of the horrors of that lake. <laughs> And so he's very confident in saying, I'm not going to go down there. Why should we go down there? If you want to go check, you know, you can do that, Uh, not to Sarmina, to some of the other uh, scoundrels that are within Cotier. But he's so blatantly disregarding her commands, which is Sarmina's ultimate downfall, right? Like (laughs) the undermining of her staff or not staff of her. Her army is really her demise. Like, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I think that that's a, a cool inclusion. It's very different than what we saw with Clooney, right? Because yeah. Clooney was was ruthless to the end and everyone feared him to the end. But with Sarmina, we're really seeing that her pull is not going very far. We still yeah. know that she's dangerous and we see that in the final act. But man, we are not seeing um, she has she does not have the authority that she had yeah. she once had at the very beginning of this chapter or not chapter at the, at the beginning of book two. Um, yeah, we're seeing a difference. I mean, at the end of it,
1: I think it's, it's interesting that you reference Clooney because at this point in time in Redwall, right? Uh, Clooney has Redwall, like Clooney succeeds, Clooney gets yeah. in. Um, and Clooney's Clooney's army is there with him through the entire time. You know, talk about Clooney being, brutal or ruthless or you know what have you um but i think that he was clever and i think that his his horde believed in him in a way that they don't believe in sarmina because sarmina isn't i mean she is clever but she's more defined by her her pride and her her rage you know her anger yeah,
0: I don't. I don't think Sarmina and Clooney are on the same level at all. Um, they're both bad. Don't don't get me wrong, but yeah, you're totally right. They're in two different positions at the very end of a very similar structured book, um, and I think that Sarmina, if she wouldn't, if if she had the the same amount of respect that that um, Clooney's men had for Clooney, I think the outcome of this final act would be very different. Um, and the undermining of Kotir with the flooding would, would have been found, you know, and Mm -hmm. I I do applaud Jake's for using a similar story structure of, you know, this hero coming to battle during this final act, which we're going to see. I do applaud him for creating some differences and telling a different story through a very similar structure. Um, and and I think that it, you know, it, it definitely works here. I will say pausing where we're at now before we get into the final act in the next episode how i thought this would play out does not play out how i thought (laughs) you know what i mean like (laughs) um reading reading that final act is not how i thought what what would happen i'll talk about what i thought would happen you know later versus what actually does and how i really think that jake's does a great job of capping off this book
1: yeah definitely i i want to hear that Well, that concludes our summaries of book two, uh, Solomon Dastron. Uh, let's talk about our most memorable side characters because we're introduced to a couple that I think are actually pretty important. Um, I, I collected four different figures here that I, I kind of wanted to bring our attention to. The first is Lord Kavir. You know, He's the bat of that little bat society uh, who helps Martin on his way. Uh, of course, Bore the Fighter, uh, Trub's Weather and Fring as our new hair friends. And then the aforementioned Tim Ballisto. I can't believe Tim Ballisto made this list. <laughs> He's Martin's friend. <laughs> and like, as far yeah, as the war is concerned, he is important to the war.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. So it- well, you want
1: to go first? Uh, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure our answer is going to be the exactly the same. But for me, it's yeah, obviously I'll Skip to the, bore the end. Fighter. <laughs> it's
0: it's bore the fighter. The, if if you are if you are putting Tim Ballisto above bore the fighter, man, we got a you lot of might be reading the wrong book. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely bore the, bore the fighter, and I will argue that I think bore the fighter is the most impactful um introduction of the two books that we've read so far i really love his his introduction the build up to get to him um i think it's so much more rewarding than some of the other aspects that we've seen with with like other characters um and it has me ecstatic for
1: more badger lore
0: i i love (laughs) it it he's definitely the standout character
1: yeah man i i love boar so much and i i think the reason why boar is such a memorable character is is again because we really do come into the final act of his story and that's all we get you know we get his defining moment as a lord of salam and and i think that that is just just such a perfect side character to include you know like bring us into the thick of it we don't get too much of the rest of his history it's left a mystery for us to ponder or to wonder about and i think that only serves to increase his kind of legendary presence um because we 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 see the the, the kind of defining moment of his whole career as a lord of salam Dastron. he does two things that we we absolutely see first he gives martin the sword and second he just wrecks face (laughs) it's
0: yeah it's awesome yeah he gives he gives martin rat death and he gives him some rat deaths
1: (laughs) you know like
0: (laughs) yeah uh, it's very cool uh all right so what about most memorable vermin
1: so finding some most memorable vermin that only show up you know are only introduced in uh, book two, I may adjust going forward instead of looking at just the ones that are introduced in a certain book um, to include maybe characters who have just a more prominent role in a certain part of the book. Um, like Brog. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or like Dinny, you know, like Dinny has a more expanded oh, role, Denny. you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but in book two, we're introduced to Snakefish, to Marsh Green, to Bane, and to Rip Fang, all of whom I think serve kind of that role of uh, vermin. Yeah, for me, uh,
0: this is gonna sound redundant, but it's Rip Fang. Um, I, I think I think Bane is memorable, but it, what you just said not too long ago is really sticking with me. That he doesn't really do much to serve the plot, mm-hmm. but Rip Fang and blood wake specifically th- the ship have so much to do with the plot of the last act that I think um, I think it's really important to, to highlight him as being the most memorable vermin. Um, I, that fight is incredible. Um, I think rip thing is a 10 out of 10 vermin name too. Like <laughs> yes. um, I, I, it's like, I wonder if Jake's just wrote down a list of, you know, names and it was just like, yeah, this is this is a good one. I'm going to make sure that this is, you know, a really (laughs) cool character. Um, Yeah, I I, it's got to be Rip Fang Fang for me.
1: I think for me, it actually is Bane. Um, When I think about this book and, you know, kind of the, the characters that that crop up, Rip Fang is cool as, you know, kind of this like menacing pirate captain, but I don't think that he really is very present um he's a presence in that he's the concern for for boar the fighter um but he's almost an invisible antagonist like he he would be the clooney of an entirely different book right um but in in this as he's presented we only see him for like one paragraph and that one paragraph is when boar kills him um So yeah, he, he strangles him. Yeah, he does. <laughs> oh man. It's, it's so he says, come here friend. I got to tell you something. And he it just squeezes dope. him to death. Yeah. Uh, but I like Bane. I, I think that Bane is the first Fox that we see that really is like ruthless. Um, and I think he sets up this kind of like wandering Ronan style mercenary um, that we're going to see of future Foxes. So I, I I thought he was a really cool character in spite of the fact that I really do think you could take him out of the book and lose nothing.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I think uh, uh, Bane's definitely a runner up for sure. Um, so I think that's a, a good answer. I think Bane also concludes a lot of questions that we have about some of the things going on, like yeah. and um and in So, yeah. All right. What about uh, cool new locations?
1: I mean, we only really get two locations here. Uh, there's the land of the mists and Salamandastron. and, Dastrin, and uh, y- you know what we're gonna say. <laughs> I guess you could
0: argue the cave is kind of a new. Yeah, um, the cave location. is a new location, sure. Does it have a name though? I don't even remember. I don't. Um, I don't think it if, if I, have a If name. it does, I don't have it in my notes.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it's just like Lord cave You know, I don't know his land, his cave. <laughs>
0: I don't know, man. Land of the Mist was pretty cool. Oh, wow, That scream <laughs> hall is pretty spooky. Uh, no, it's Salamanca for sure. <laughs> like uh, Salamanca, it's
1: just such a great location, man. Oh, yeah,
0: it's so good. It's so good to the point that I want to Photoshop mountains to be like Salamanca <laughs> and put them in my office because <laughs> it's. <laughs> I just, oh man, I love Salamanca so much. Um, By the way, I haven't mentioned this before. When we start the episode, salamandastron, salamandastron. um, This is something that we we hear a lot of. uh, Sal, uh, what is it? Um, Salamandastron. uh, I think is the most common way that people say that in the U.S. Most readers, if you're a U.S. reader, would probably mm-hmm. think of salamandastron because of how we say salamander. However, if we we found a video, it's on YouTube of, of Jake's um, talking to a group of kids and he's mentioning uh, he's mentioning his stories and he explicitly says Salamandastron. So that's why we say it, too, is that he, that's the pronunciation he had. But just know that those are just synonymous with each other. Obviously, it's just. Yep pronounced a little bit different. Same with Asmodeus uh, or Asmodeus. If you listen to the Redwall um, audiobook, um, he says uh, Asmodeus, um, but then Jake's himself says Asmodeus. So again, yeah. kind of up in there how that's to be pronounced. But we'll we'll keep saying Sal- Sal- Mandastron- uh Sorry, Salamandastron. We'll keep saying <laughs> that going forward, but uh,
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I listened to a lot of the uh, audiobook for *Mossflower*, because uh, I was also curious. So it's was like, you know, how does how does Jake say it? I found the same YouTube video that he he did, but I also listened to the story, and it, it's clear it's Salamandastren. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of how we're gonna say it yeah
0: in that same youtube video we also learned that he really hates flash so
1: if you uh, go
0: back and watch it some poor dad has a camera with flash on and uh and jake stops what he's saying to say hey turn your flash off and i just felt like man i if i was a kid i'd be like dad i'm so embarrassed by you but if i was the dad i'd be like oh shoot this uh this (laughs) author guy had to stop
1: his presentation and tell me to turn my flash off so that's really funny. Yeah, he was. Uh, man, what a what a guy was Brian Jakes. Um, just such an interesting speaker and very witty. And uh,
0: yeah, yeah. I know this is going to be kind of a somber note for this episode. Um, but it's kind of a bummer that uh, never getting the chance to meet him. I mean, I I can't even say I'm a huge fan because I haven't read all of his books. But I know how impactful he was for a lot of people. Um.
1: So, yeah, it's definitely a, it's definitely a little bit of a bummer. I um, I will definitely I will definitely say I was one of those. I wasn't a kid anymore when he died. I mean, uh, shoot, I, I was in college. Um, in fact, I think it was I think I was in grad school when he died. I think you were. <laughs> yeah. And I remember hearing the news and feeling deeply, deeply remorseful that I couldn't get another 20 years of red wall stories from him you know um mm-hmm. because these books are so so amazing and i i keep waiting i keep waiting for someone to come in and start you know writing sequels uh like playing in this sandbox a little bit more you know bringing more to this fantasy but i also think like like most things you know so it, it ends at some point and you kind of have to you have to let it end a little bit yeah, absolutely. And I think
0: that's one of the reasons why uh, it's a it's a big motivation for us doing this podcast too, is that we want to try to build a community of people that like these books and like myself reading them later on, but seeing the importance it was for a lot of people. And then like you, Trevor, reading them as a, as a child and how, um, that helped you as a formative reader. Uh, we want to build a community around this because I think Jake's name can be lost in a lot of conversations about fantasy and, and, um, and adventuring. And, and I think that, uh, you know, trying to do this podcast, we're, we're hoping to build a little bit of a community for that. So on that note, we want to thank you so much. If you got to this point in the episode, this incredibly long episode, we don't know if it's going to be one episode or two. We'll kind of feel how, uh, see, see what the upload is. Um, but if you got to this point, thank you so much for, for listening to us talk about this and we want to hear from you. So if you, uh, can follow us, um, on Instagram or threads at books and badgers, again, that's books and badgers with an N in the middle. Uh, we want to hear from you. Feel free to, to direct message us, or, uh, we try to do some fun things on Instagram, like doing polls, uh, or asking what your favorite parts are. And we want to be able to feature those on the, on the show. Um, so please follow us there and engage with us there. Um, if you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is to leave us a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. So if that's Apple Podcasts or if that's Google Google Podcasts, whatever they call it, um, yeah, wherever you're listening, a review helps us a lot, kind of helps visibility and helps more people to discover the show. Um, and then lastly, if you have any questions, um, feel free to email us at booksinbadgers at gmail.com. So that's kind of our listener mailbox. If you have any questions or corrections, you can send that there. And then I said last thing, but here's the real last thing. Trevor, you have some incredible things coming up with your podcast at Slayhouse Presents. Uh, so we got to give that plug because it's your season. <laughs> it's spooky season. You continue to impress with the number of authors that you get connected to that you have featured on the show. Um, if you're a fan of horror, um, that is your podcast. Go check out Trevor at Slayhouse Presents.
1: Yeah, I've, I've got some great stuff coming. Uh, we're, we, we just dropped an episode. Uh, we're recording today. So th- today is a Saturday. Just dropped an episode with Angela Sylvain talking about frostbite, like I mentioned at the top of the show. Uh, it's a great book. It's a really fun interview. We talk about nostalgia and killer prairie dogs. Um, but we've I've also got some other episodes coming through, you know, Krista Carmen is going to be on the show. Uh, Nat Cassidy at the end of the month, as his book is coming out, we're talking about um, Nestlings, his new book, and I'm going to have an episode with writer Katrina Carruth, where we talk about your spooky season reads and kind of celebrating some of our favorite things in horror, including some scrumptious dishes and snacks to accompany your peckish moods in Halloween season. So. Oh,
0: I love that. I love that so much. I might steal that idea to make some (laughs) um, red wall recipes to go along with (laughs) reading. Uh, That's
1: great. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for the plug and thank you for listening, whether you're listening over here at Books and Badgers or over at Slay House. It's really great. Yeah, absolutely. And as a, as always, it's a pleasure recording
0: these episodes with you, Trevor. Um, I love having these conversations. And yeah, we will catch you in uh the next episode, which is going to be our wrap up for Mossflower. I can't believe it. We're going to be wrapping this book up I know. and getting to a review episode. It's it's crazy to think. It's wild. Um, well, thanks again and we'll catch you guys next time. Bye.